Hello and welcome to what is now our fourth episode of Allies of Convenience. Welcome, welcome back. Uh, my name is Alex Ray and I am joined here by our regular cast of uh, motley names. Uh, Matt Robertson, hello sir. Howdy. Uh, we've got James Ramsey. Hello. We've got Mike Collins, superstar Mike Collins, hello. Hello mate, how are you? I'm very well. And uh, we have got Jesse who is in the middle of watching the mighty Philadelphia Eagles march to, I believe it's a 6-2 uh, it record. 6-2, six and, six and hello chaps. Did I fit in what? with you guys now? Oh, lovely, Governor, lovely. Um, so, yeah, we've got uh, an interesting episode for you this week. Um, we are throwing forward to GT Heat 3. We are looking back um, at Battlefield Birmingham 6 Part 2. Um, and we've also got some interesting player-focused interviews. So I hope you enjoy. Uh, let's get on to everyone's week. Let's start with you, Matt. What have you been up to? I've done so much this last two weeks. It's been awesome. Uh, the Liverpool League's up and running now. So I've had a couple of games in that. Uh, one against Declan's Raven Guard and one against uh, Norwich Army on kill points, which went as expected. So currently joint top with two others on that one. Then <coughs> uh, so probably playing another one of the Warlords in next week's league. So that'll be an interesting one. Um, what are you running in that? I'm running Eldar, uh, summoning Thir, four serpents, two Wraith Knights, two units of Legion of the Damned. Something a bit different. Uh, that was your sort of anti-knight meta list, is that correct? Kind of. Yeah, it does. It does well against knights. That was, so that was all right. Uh, so that, that's your idea of a fluffy list, Matt, isn't it? Nah, <laughs> I don't know that word, Mike. You know that. <laughs> uh, I did actually Jerk. play uh, five wave serpents and two wraith knights against Jews, three imperial knights, and one wraith knight on Tuesday. That was quite funny. Uh, first game was overturned two. After I killed one knight turn one, one turn two, which Scat dumped into the night, desploded and rolled a six. Oh, that's so, funny. Yeah, I told him I was doing it before I rolled, so that was funny. <laughs> uh, second game, we went to turn You mean like six. when Tony seized on you? Yeah, that was less fun. Uh, the second game, though, was quite close. I uh, killed everything apart from the knight. I think I killed one of them turn five, but turn six... I had both the home and away objectives and was just up on Maelstrom. And then turn seven may have been a draw on the primary, but thankfully the game ended. Uh, I've also been doing a lot of interviews for all the ETC episodes, and then a couple might be in this show, I think, with uh, about the Liverpool League and the play spotlight. Yeah. And then last weekend, me, Ramsey and Andy... As people may have seen on Facebook, went and played a load of games, which was great fun and good practice for Heat 3 next weekend. Uh, which, obviously, your club is going to be running up there in Warrington. Yeah, we're hosting, providing all the terrain. So. We will, of course, be covering the Heat 3 for you on the next show, um, so we look forward to that. Um, finally close the, uh, the Heat 2 qualifiers, and uh, we will be looking forward to uh, the Grand Finals next year. Yeah, I think we've got quite a lot of us guys going that one, haven't we? There's Andy, Adam, Ramsey, Donnelly. Are you going, Mike? Still don't know, mate. Still don't know. I'd love to come, but I've got my uh, my little trophy event for my little boys' football team on that weekend, so I can't leave them in the big game. And it oh. might be the weekend after, so I'm going to find that out this week. And if so, you might get a little late one. 
Uh, my friend Max is going as well. Um, so yeah, should be should be should be a good event, definitely. Um, Mike, it's nice to have you on the show. It's a rarity. Thank you. What have oh, you been? Just one. What have you been doing? Well, since the last time I've been on, mate, I've done absolutely naff all to do with 40k. That includes no games, <laughs> no list building, no painting, no nothing. Just like so, you swan in and out of the podcast when you feel like yeah. it. Criticize yeah. Robertson for all his hard work, <laughs> and you can't even be. No, I just play. I just wind him up because it's just it's just easy. Shocking. Someone's got to ground him, got to keep keep his feet on the floor. Shocking stuff. Shocking stuff. Let's move. <laughs> let's move on past you, uh, Ramsey. Are you there, sir? Yep. Excellent. What have you been up to in the past fortnight? Um. Not a vast amount. I'm trying to sell some bits and pieces that I don't need anymore. Um, played a few games on the weekend. Used um, Orklist and I used uh, Grey Knights, which was quite fun. Um, so the Orklist was like the one that was on um, SG Tactics, something Grounds video um, last week, I think. TJ tried it. Mm-hmm. So it's list with all the characters on bikes, like three or four war bosses, including the Forge World One, Gasgol, Big Mac, Pain Boy, all in the beginning. Deathcopters with some uh, GBS plot support, which is not very good. But uh, the, the Death Star was okay, but um, not too sure it's quite rounded enough to be able to uh, compete. What does the like um, what's the the gimmick behind the Death Star? How does the Death Star operate in that uh, in that build? Well, it's it's relatively fast um, I, because you've got um, a battle wagon with some tank bosses in. Gazgul can either go in there or he can go in the Death Star. The I guess the whole point of it is you've got the um, the Death Copters have got Scout and Hit and Run, which is good. Obviously, really good, powerful USRs. And then you give you attach to them war bosses with different items like things like um, the lucky stick, so it makes them all weapon skill five. Uh, you've got things like, and obviously we all uh, armor saves. You've got the big mech with a custom big mega force field from Gaskell's book. So they've all got because it's six inches, they've got a four up and vulnerable, and everybody they've got a pain boy, so they've got feel no pain. And then you've got the war bosses that are tough and six at the front. And you've got the Forge World one, um, Zard Snack, whatever his name is. He is pretty nifty because he gives the unit skills rider, so you'll get plus That's one jinx. Really and then obviously they get they get the plus one turbo boost for being orc bike, so they get two up cover, which is good. Um, if Gaswell's not in the unit, and then they've also got he he himself has got lots of strength ten power claw attacks at initiative four, so he can actually kill. Um, things at high initiative which is good and gives you like extra pilot moves and then you've got a fair amount of shooting from that squad you know some rockets and uh, twin link big shooters it's an all round just decent unit they're fearless um, and obviously you've got loads of strength 10 in there and then Gaskell can join in there if he wants to and um, he he's okay he gives the unit like a, an invulnerable save when he when he needs to while which is if you're making the warlord, which is okay. Um, I found the problem is there's enough support. Like, orcs are okay. Like, that unit's decent. But I think um, maybe better off with not all the characters and uh, less characters in there and more support. And Because the actual Death Star is okay. But I think it, if you put everything in there, it, it's a bit too much of a target. And uh, ironically, it's actually... 
I find it's actually weaker in close combat than it is against shooting. Um, because there's no invulnerable saves, it can't really handle the uh, really nasty Death mm. Stars. Mm. Um, I mean, Gazgul's Gaz got war up and fine, but you can't, like, in the old book, when you could war whenever you wanted, it was, uh, it was like, you could take, take a charge and then war. Whereas now, uh, you only can war in your turn, so if you get a little bit unlucky, like, I, I kind of, I was a, I did a bit of a risky move against Andy, I, I scouted up against his um, hounds, he had, like, almost, like, 50-odd hounds, yeah. and I uh, scouted up, just to get Gaskell a bit further forward, and um, he seized, and then charged me with two units on turn one, and it hurt, because I lost, I lost the big mech, and the uh, a couple of guys, and and I killed a fair few hounds in return. I hit and ran out, but it's it's that kind of thing. If I'd had the war up, I would have been I would have just uh, probably crushed him because the heralds wouldn't have done any damage on Gasgill's uh, wonderful save. So as I said, I think it's better to drop Gasgill, maybe run the, the copter unit with just a couple of war bosses, mm. and then spread out the points into more more support. And then the so the other game, and I'm going on a bit here. The other game was just a sense star. Um, pretty standard scent star, some you know, big centurion unit with some dread knights and a storm raven. I think I had, and I played again Andy's um, corn hound unit, and yeah, it was scent star's good. Uh, Andy committed a bit. I think he we kind of weighed up a bit. We, we that was a game where we were kind of talking a lot as we're going through, and um, centurion star. We found it's a good list. The only problem is, I found is um, if somebody denies a key power. Or if you like, let's say you roll like five or four or five dice at gate and you only get one success and someone blocks it, you can leave yourself like really bad positions um, because you've got so many points in one unit. And while the unit is really good, it's just, it's quite difficult. If something goes wrong with that unit, there's not a lot of like, you know, hasn't really got to get out of jail card like, uh, like say Beast Pack used to have or other armies that maybe could uh, take a bad round of um, psychic phase or, or like, for example, if, you're playing demons and they roll that psycho's got to take a leadership check and they pick like out unluckily they pick out Drago and he dies then you're kind of stuck really screwed to be honest um, so yeah it's a good list though I think it's it's definitely a list which you might see at ETC because it's because if it can pick on somebody with no dice uh, like um, someone like like orcs or or uh, chaos without like a chaos like combat army or um, even like a serpent spam without many dice, I think it's, it's pretty good against them. Do chaos combat armies exist rather than chaos sorting armies? Not the ETC, I don't <laughs> Just in general. <laughs> I think combat, like if you run like spawn with, I know there's a couple of lists. Um, they always run summoning backed up by that spawn. Yeah, yeah. there's always. What, you I mean know. Is, what I mean is, I don't mean like, I mean like it's five, three or four dice is fine. I mean like 20 dice is where it becomes a problem because they can roll. Like you, you go for gate and you get like two or three successes, even with like five or six dice, they probably won't stop it. But if they've got 20 dice, they'll roll all yeah. of them at gate and they'll stop it. And then you're like, oh, shit. I'm stuck in combat against a Screamer Star and I can't do anything. Or I'm stuck in combat against, um, you know, something that's going to tie me up all game. Um, but yeah, uh, that's just my opinion. I, I think it's good against, uh, like I said, other armies without much dice. Um, not so good against other armies with lots of dice there. When you're playing, like, uncomped invisibility as well, they're really good against bikes, I find. Um, yeah, yeah, they're because um, they can't be hit by anything, and no, uh, pretty much all invisibility, they can just troll around the board and shoot people. And like, they're also not not so good against knights. Knights can be a pro- no. bit of a problem. No. Um, you've got to play really carefully against knights. I think if you have uncommon invis, they can't be doing damage to you, so you kind of just have to 
Um, well, they can they can tread uh, on you, can't they? So that's, that's yes, you have, oh yeah, you don't get in combat. If you get in combat, you die. Mm. Uh, unless you get lucky. But in shooting, they don't really do a lot to. So I guess it's kind of trying to kill their support stuff if they, if you can get to it. But the issue is if you if you gate if you gate near them to shoot anything else and you get a little bit unlucky and scattered towards them, mm. you can uh, end up fighting multiple knights, and that's really bad. Because you can probably one on one, you can probably take a knight, and if let's say you're all a stomp, you'd probably be all right. But like two knights, you're pretty much guaranteed to get a six somewhere, and then that's it. You're you're in trouble. Bad looks. I, I do like the um, I do like the orc, the orc bikes in, in general. Um, it's nice when you obviously giving them the scout and um, and hit and run. Hit and run's wonderful. Um, I, I like the uh, I like the forge or character that gives them skilled rider. Skilled, I think skilled rider is so important for for the orc bikes because they've got such a shit armor save. Um, yeah, they, it's really important because like the war bosses, for example, they've only got like a four up save, and he himself has only got a six up save. So um, he's really quite easy to kill. Um, mm. It's really weird, but yeah, the 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 jink is not it's good, but it's obviously the the not taking millions of dangerous terrain checks because exactly. you're like consolidating and yeah. uh, hit and running out or whatever, and you end up taking so many wounds. Otherwise, um, I, I probably wouldn't run it without him. I think he's really important. Um, um, I played uh, I played Gary when like orcs. Came, about three weeks after Orcs came out, and he had like a really cool list with um, like two big units of um, like bikers that yeah. was pretty cool against um, like Beast Pack. Did quite well against Beast Pack, but if you just make make Orc bikes go through terrain, they just it, it's more effective than shooting them uh, in some instances. Yeah, uh, so, yeah, yeah. The Orc bikes are good. Um, I know there's people who've who've done well with them. I know there's lots lots of guys in um, I think France are doing okay, and I've seen a couple other tournaments where they've done pretty well. Uh, I think they, they they're going to struggle in a, like an uncomp tournament because there's just mm. some armies they can't deal with. Um, I think something like knights, uh, apart from trying to combat them and maybe getting lucky with some tank busters, um, pretty difficult to deal with. Um, and wave serpent spam can be horrible if they get if they don't get first turn. They mm. just get shot to crap. Uh, I know Gary liked to run looters, didn't he? Which are okay, but. They're all vulnerable to leadership and all these kind of you know things that good armies don't normally worry about. These kind of yeah, very yeah, leaderships. yeah. There's it's 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 kind of um, characterful for orcs, but um, yeah, that sort of variance and when the wheels fall off, they fall off spectacularly. Um, yeah, the the fact which goes back get... to like the grot the grot um, the grot troops as well. Like they're so easy to make run away. Um, yeah, the absolute pants. Um, <laughs> they don't do anything as well, which is. <laughs> Yeah, I always never like. I never like buying troops that don't do anything. I, mm. Like, like um, elder jet bikes. Like you think, oh, they don't do anything, but actually they're they're pretty decent at doing like chipping wounds off here and there, and because they can so quick, they can get maelstrom points. Whereas grots just just they sit at the back and there's not they can't do anything because as soon as they step outside of terrain, they just get vaporized because they've got no save at all, and um, they really can't deal with like even the most basic of. Uh, threats they really struggle against so I, I didn't like I, that was the biggest problem I found with that list bikes are, like you say jet bikes are great because they don't need to do anything apart from late game move 48 inches set an objective whereas grots are max moving 6 end game and not really doing anything before that like you say yeah um, so that was yeah the troops are a big big problem for all so I think, I've seen a couple of guys running like small units in trucks which is an okay idea um, and if you want to give up the thinking cap 
warlord, then uh, Zad Snark, of his name is, can make troop, uh, war bikes troops, which is an idea. Because um, there was, I was thinking about running like uh, units of three war bikes, almost like uh, Eldar jet bikes, because they're only they're like what eighteen points each or something. The orc war bikes, so they're pretty cheap objectives. Um, not object, well, can be objectives secured, but pretty cheap troops uh, that can you know fire nine strength five shots a turn but I never really tried it and uh, I never, I don't actually own that many bikes so I would never be able to run you know a big bike horde um, but yeah it's a decent army I, I think it would take a, some some practice and working out what the best support is what's the initiative you got on that um, hit and run unit James on the big one is it is it four is it with that four initiative four yeah initiative four is the best so, yeah. so you can't get you can't I don't think any orcs initiative five can't no um, should be reliable enough, shouldn't it? Yeah, it's, it's reliable enough. I guess the thing is, most most at the moment, the, the, the thing about it is that most units can't take multiple strength tens. Like strength ten is just death to most units at the moment, like, no. especially in combat. Don't get me started on this again, James. Yeah. And that <laughs> has lots of strength ten, but also it's got toughness six um, mm. wound soak, so you can take strength ten back. So if you play, uh, you know, like Thunderwolves, which are strength ten, which you should be really. You can actually do okay against them because you you might lose most of the Death Star, but you I'm can kill. That to say Wraith Knights, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah like, Wraith Knights you don't even care about because you just tank them on and feel no pain. Or or if mm. you got Gaskell in there, he's got invulnerable save. You can you can charge multiple of them. I mean, I charged two knights and I got a little bit lucky, but killed both you know, really easily. Um, but then they they killed the whole unit back, so that was kind of. But I guess you've got, you've got to be really careful. Like, you know, we were saying to Matt, I think he was agreeing that if you that unit seems kind of simple, but it, it's it's one of the most difficult units I've had to use because they've all got like you've got so many characters in there, and they've all got different abilities. You've got to be really careful how you how you uh, move them. The position and everything within that unit was important as well. Yeah, you had to like you had to make sure if you had like a lucky like a mega arm, um, called like a lucky stick guy, he's got to be near the front, but able to look out so if he needs to. And you've got um, the fearless, the guy with the fearless banner pole, he needs to be, he's quite important because obviously they're not fearless, so you need to keep him there. And the big mech with the custom force field, he needs to be in a good position. And then uh, you've got all the death copters have got to be in good positions because you want, you want them to tank a bit, but you don't want them to die because they're quite good at, um, you need you know a couple of them to hit and run out if you need to. So it was difficult in that regard Maybe that's another reason why I would, wouldn't take so many characters because it kind of made the unit too difficult to move about the mm. table. Um, but it's I think it's a pain, I, isn't it? You know, when you've got a unit that big and that varied, all the all the good good players will know how to tear it apart. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you get if you get hit on the side with like some wave serpent and you ha- and you've only got like say uh, a big mech out there, he's gonna he's gonna die really easily. Um, yeah, because you've only got. A four up armor and five up feel no pain, so it's, it's not even. I don't think that's even a three up in probability. So it's, it's not. It's not. Or maybe it's just about three up. It's not great. Um, but the, the unit was quite fun. I think. I, th- I don't think orcs are that bad, really. I think they're pretty good. Just uh, from my, just from playing them a few times, and they'd be awesome in Maelstrom, wouldn't they? Really, if if you had the time and the and the back to play with a million orcs, you know, you you'd be pretty hard to uh, to shift off all those Maelstrom objectives. Yeah, I've seen like I said, I've in in Europe they they seem to be doing quite well. Orcs, it just it hasn't quite worked here. I guess people just haven't taken 
uh, picked them up and played them because you don't see many people playing orcs at the moment, and they're just they're not the most popular army. And then trying to get them to play in a in a two and a half hour or three hour tournament is is pretty difficult. As you said time is a major problem. Well, I mean the the book it came out and it didn't really sort of set the world alight in terms of excitement of people picking it up. Um, the new units are kind of lacklustre. Um, so there's not really any new impetus to play Orcs. Um, and obviously they haven't got any Battle Brothers, so they haven't got like any you know, shenanigans with, with allies that they can really effectively do. I mean, you are seeing sort of Orcs and Chaos and Orcs and Necrons towards you know, the, the, the tail end of Sixth. Um, yeah. But, yeah, you really have to sort of put some effort into play to play Orcs. And there's these, these sort of seventh edition books are not really coming out and wowing anyone to, to rush out and suddenly I've got to get my Orcs out again. You, you really, ta- you, you really uh, have to make a conscious effort to really want to make them work, um, which yeah. is obviously going to be why you're not going to see a lot of people. Yeah, and I think also like the, some of the best builds of Orcs are things like the Bully Boys formation that's really good, but to buy 50 mega knobs if you're like new to the game, 50 <laughs> mega knobs is, you know, and then you've got to buy trucks with them as well. I mean, you're looking at a ridiculous price if you're trying to buy them, you know, in GW, say. You're looking at, I don't know, a couple hundred pounds just for, just for you know, 700 points. I mean, you'd get six nights for that, couldn't you, on the black market? Yeah. So. yeah. It's uh, exactly. It's, and uh, another army, you know, which I think is, is pretty good actually in the meta at the moment is their Green Tide, but mm. you've got to got to build a hundred orcs minimum again three hour game three hours of game a hundred orcs is you're going to struggle with everything else as well um i know tj at stomping grounds has played um green tide quite a lot and uh other guys have, have tried it and i think it's a decent army but yeah it would put, it would put me off trying to play a hundred models it was actually one of the big things he ran into with the army was uh it was so many guys he wasn't able to properly spread or anything like that in time limits and so he got taken abused by blast he just but he just couldn't do it yeah that wouldn't surprise me you know you play like a guy with two thunderfire cannons and you've got 100 orcs you're going to be in trouble if you don't take 10 minutes to spread out properly yeah let alone if you play someone with a six battle cannon um, yeah, types, or like five or six withens or something like that. You can, mm, yeah, you can yeah, do yeah, the whole exactly. in one turn. You might as well carry them around in a big bag, bin bag, and just scrape them off the table. Right? Yeah, but then again, you know, a green tide. If it rolls infiltrate warlord trait, can quite easily deal with uh, adamantium lance. I think Je- mm. didn't you, Jesse, against uh, in Nova? You played against green tide. Yeah, I played against uh, Matt Parker from the Wrecking Crew. Uh, it basically came down to if I roll a single six on the stomp, I win the game. But I, alas, I couldn't, and uh, I lost all three Imperial Knights. So, but they infiltrated off, and then he moved, ran, and he got six inches on his move through cover and six inches on his run, and went. Well, I guess I have no choice but to shoot and assault you instead. And so I did that, but you know, it was just a bunch up. I would have got both war bosses, a pain boy, and like two knobs because of where they had to be to kill Imperial Knights if I could just roll a six and I just couldn't. But if I would have done that, you know, he would have lost Fearless, he would have lost uh, his Warlord, he would have lost Pain Boy, and he would have lost like two of his six or seven knobs with power claws he had. And it was just like, at that point, I'm okay with this. I'll, I'll win that combat. You know, I'll just just slowly chop it down. But it eh, didn't happen. 
And uh, I think Green Tide is very good against Adamantium Lance because of that. Yeah, I mean, I've seen They some... definitely have the hidden weapons to deal with it. Hmm. Yeah, and you see, you can see there's pictures of people, you know, when you infiltrate 100 guys right in front of someone, it's, and they've all got, you've got a layer of guys with four armor and feel no pain. It's not as easy to remove as you think. Mm -hmm. People panic as mm -hmm. well. Yeah, people panic and then they, you know, they, they can war and they got they got a massive charge range with here we go on the second on turn two if they get turn one uh, they can easily charge you turn two so it's a it's quite a scary threat um, and it's low to strength ten you can get five or six knobs of power claws you're looking at like thirty attacks and charge strength ten yeah I mean we were we were we were uh, playing I, like I said I played a Minova and it was it was Vanguard deployment and it basically came down to well I can't back up far enough for you to not assault me on turn two. I don't want you to get the charge off. I guess I'll just shoot you with everything and then charge with all three knights and pray for the best, you know. And, and against a lot of armies, that could be that could be quite a you know quite an impossible task. Yeah, my worry you know, they would just be deal with. My worry would be playing something like nine broadsides and you just can't do anything. Yeah, exactly. It's like okay, here's nine broadsides and they're all gone. Uh, and you're dead. It's gone, isn't it? They're still butt hurt from from when Tau came out. And just remove their entire army in two phases. I think, thankfully, there's not too many running nine broadsides these days because they go for other options a bit more all round. But when because you deal into that now and again, <laughs> but even like yeah, six I mean, broadsides it's, are just a nightmare to deal with. Uh, nine broadsides, yeah, but I mean, it, still you know against what? knights too. Yeah, you're 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 still seeing a lot of, but you're seeing a lot of lists move to at least here in the states. You're seeing a ton of lists move to. You know, three-man crisis suit units with double pods each and marker drones. But then you're seeing, like, three or four of those units. So even there, you know, it's like even with Tau there, that, that's still really scary. People are migrating towards that, at least here, because uh, in the meta, you know, the mobility is more important than the broadside's additional firepower. So... Although I'm I'm a huge fan of the Russian ETC list. I just love the the idea behind the broadsides working in conjunction with the ethereal for Zephyr's Grace and and um having marker lights so you can move, run the broadsides and then marker light them back up and just still unleash your firepower. Hmm. Guys are I think, doing I think if you're gonna run like broadsides a, about a year ago, I think already. So yeah. I have I've definitely heard yeah. that that being used. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that wasn't that's not really something that's been done here in the states. Uh, you know, I don't really see anybody ever ever do that. And when we looked at the the Russian list, I, you know, when I was when I was working with the TC team and all that, and helping with Justin and everything, and, and helping coach him in particular, like I looked at it, I went, Justin, I love this towel list. And you know, I've had a couple guys in our store play it in in different aspects, and I think I think it's by far the best way to run broadsides because looking at the meta, at least here in the states, it requires mobility. Yeah, you know, if you're if you're a static army, you're going to get beat up by things like knights that are just going to ram down your throat. You know, things that just sit outside, hang outside your range, and just pot shot your army like wave serpents. You know, Tal needs the mobility, and luckily, you know, I think Tal's still a super strong army because they have that. Yeah, I think you'll see a resurgence of town. I think, uh, like, I think you're going to see summoning really take off here in the UK once uh, pretty, or if already it already has started. I think, but summoning will take off here, and that's going to. I think town and a few armies that can actually that they can struggle if you've got traditional, you know, riptides and things. But if you've got nine broadsides, don't really care if they got if they summon uh, you know, 
10 demonettes because you just you split fire with a couple of broadsides and like that. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you know, I think, I think Tal, and Tal's still, in my opinion, Tal's still one of the best. Like, oh, I don't know what to bring. Like, we've, we've had it with TJ in particular. You know, um, TJ's been really working on the orcs and he hasn't really been comfortable with them yet. I found what, what really gels with them. And, and Tal's kind of been his auto fallback because it's like, well, I can beat wave serpents. I could beat, you know, mass summoning stuff like that because I just ha- he he's been running like a unit or two. He's been running like fire support cadre with two units of broadsides. So I was like, I could kill these things. It's just been like a perfect fallback because it's like, okay, I could still I could still dunk wave serpents. I can still dunk, you know, certain armies out there. So they're they're just I feel like they have a really good spot in the meta right now. And they're flying under the radar. I I just really like the depth of the book. Um, there's so many, there's so many good choices in there that eventually, as, as soon as the meta sort of settles down, there's enough choices in there to find answers to whatever uh, emerges as being, you know, pr- prominent. Um, there's just so much good stuff in that book, and I think that's that's really the only mm-hmm. problem. It's like you don't know, you don't know specifically what you need your army to be doing, um, and obviously at the moment it's killing wave serpents and knights, but that could change. You know, in a week's in a week's time, at this rate, um, and there's the, but there's a lot of answers in that book. I, I I definitely still think there's legs in that book, and we will see it. You know, step back up in there. Would you say it was top three still? Um, I don't know that I would say it's top three. Definitely say though, it it wholeheartedly competes with anything you want to put at top three. I would say it's like kind of right there on the borderline. I wouldn't necessarily say it's top three just because they they don't feel like the all-comer army as much anymore, as much as they feel like the, the okay, I know what to expect. Here's a list, and it's just you're not going to be able to deal with my answers. Yeah. And, you know, and then they get, they get punished elsewhere. Um, so, yeah, once the meta settles down, I think they would definitely be a top three army. Um, right now, I think they're kind of knocking on the door, and any army you name is a top tier army, whether it's you know adamantium lance, or or wave serpents, um, you know summoning. It's just like oh look, they have the answers, and they have the answers economically. Like you know, there's not a tell army out there that can't just be like okay, well here's here's like you know two or three men or two or two men or individual crisis suit units with double melta. They'll just deep strike in on all different sides and kill an imperial knight. And then look, I traded a fifty man. A fifty-man crisis suit for a three hundred and seventy-point knight. Yeah, you know, it's like they 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 are very economical in their answers. I think Tau with the top players playing them are definitely top three, but in general they're probably like Jesse said, just below sat competing to be. I I I like Tau in the way that I like Marines in that you know you can you can put so much different stuff together and and really just evolve and have answers i think they are i think they are equally the the books are probably the best comparison they are one in the same Mm. you know those books have the answers for pretty much everything out there it's just a matter of what answers do you bring and what do you actually see what is the question you know if i bring Exactly, like you know, if I bring an anti wave serpent matchup and I don't play wave serpents and I play Tau, and it's just like, oh crap, you know, it's it's like um, Neil from the 11th company brought a list to Battle for Salvation and went, This list is really, really good in the meta. I have good imperial answers, 
I have good wave serpent answers. I have good like marine answers. He's like, I just can't deal with riptides. And he was like, as long as I don't play riptides, I'll be fine. <laughs> and his first like two or three games was triple riptides, TJ included. And he just went, oh, like what, you know, what, what the hell? You know, it, it, but it was exactly that. Like he, he banked on it. He was like, oh, I won't see riptides. Riptides are, you know, everybody did swears riptides a, are dead. Yeah, did I fall thinking, through a wormhole and wake up in 2013 or something like that? Yeah, like he played TJ with with quad riptides. Then he played an Ovesa star list that was like Ovesa star and a unit of crisis suits and like fully done with like two other riptide support. You know, it was just like bam, 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 like just, oh, look, all these riptides. It was like I didn't realize I was playing, you know, sixth edition in between Death Star 40K and and the beginning of sixth edition where it was nothing but Taldar. And, and like three riptides in a race night. And he was like, oh, well, nothing you can do about it. And I think that's the problem Tal suffers from. I think that's also the problem Marines suffer from. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, so, yeah, speaking of meta, it would be interesting to have a little conversation about that. Um, so we've still got, what, two books left to come out uh, before we're all, we're all seventhed up. Or so we're all hardbacked up anyway. Um, Excuse me, sir, three books. What's the third? You're forgetting. There, there's rumors that they're doing Sisters of Battle in this, in this as well. Oh, that's just going to be a hard, hard-backed version of this. Same with the. That's like calling the Inquisition a book. They're, they're just going to be. They're going to do the Sisters of Battle, and then they're not going to release any plastic kits, and nobody's going to be able to afford to do, do the army anymore. <laughs> and you, and you Again, can't order the miniatures even online through anyway. <laughs> through even through Ally Express, it's not even cheap. <laughs> Uh, oh, I see. I see. Andy's joined us. Hello, Andy. Hey there, guys. Hi. I'm sorry, a bit late to the party. That's all right. We understand. Were you uh, busy spraying little men again? Uh, actually, my my airbrush is broke, and I'm sat here trying to repair it. Uh, um, so this is going to be a, a nice 150 quid repair job, I think. Uh, I need I, that fixed. I, <laughs> I know. I know. It's like the worst possible time because I've got all this. Uh, all these demons to the spray. I've got like literally, I've got 24 plague drones on my desk, 40 horrors, 40 demonettes, nine screamers, a load of extra bits and bobs. I've got tons of stuff to do, and my airbrush decides to die on me. So that's uh, enough. For, that's like that's like one person's. Uh... I've just bought 30 more demonettes as well, Andy. Have you? Oh yeah. god! So it's more to add to the pile. Yeah. This is gonna hurt. <laughs> you just need to get sort of like some 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 slave labour in to just. Uh... Just, just out these He's got me. I can do it. I just need. I just need the equipment. <laughs> so I need to borrow like uh, uh, Tom Gould's airbrush or something for for a week. So Tom, if you're listening, I need your airbrush. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, anything else you've been? Have you been? Obviously, we saw um, some of your posts on the Facebook group. If you missed that, um, go and check them out. Uh, Facebook.com forward slash AOC podcast. Uh, you guys were doing some testing. Um, you've got um, quite an interesting list. That you're running at the moment. Yeah, we had uh, we had a cool little test weekend down in uh, at Liverpool Reapers. James Ramsey came up from Isle of Man or Isle of White or something for for the <laughs> I can't remember where it is, but for for the uh, for the weekend and we had uh, we just did a ton of games. It's quite it's quite nice. We um, we tested out a lot of demon ideas, um, mm. like like what summoning stuff works, the best way to compose a summoning list, and we, we decided anyway. After I tried out the Hound Rush list, that that summoning, adding summoning to the Hound Rush list was was going to work. So that list evolved now into having 
a little bunker at the back of the board to sit and summon a ton of extra demons while I throw the 60 hounds down people's, down people's throats. So what's so the crux of that list, if you want to let the people know? Well, it's, well, it's got two, it's, it's got two, uh, two like, cruxes to it, really. It's, it's got like the scouting rush of the 55 hounds with the two corn heralds that have got all the gear. That sort of rushes forward um, and, and is really good against wave serpents and, and uh, uh, wraith knights because the heralds have got like, instant death weapons on a six, mm. 82. So they're really good at taking out the Eldar meta. Obviously, Imperial Knights are a little bit different because they can struggle. I struggle against armor, but I'll get onto that later. Um, Just to backtrack you a little bit here, Andy, since I know a few people posted up on Facebook about the pictures, just asking what the list was and how it works. So, can you just go through from the start, saying? Yeah, so, so the the list that I'm going to take to Heat Three at the weekend, uh, this weekend coming, um, is going to be so it's 1650. It's two Corn Heralds. With uh, on blood on juggernauts with a greater gift and a lesser gift, so that I can take the ether blade and the greater ether blade plus some strength, uh, specialist weapon and mastercrafted, and the axe of corn, which is specialist weapon, so I get plus one attack for having two. Um, and on a, it's got decapitating blow, so on a six, it causes instant death, and the both weapons are AP two, so that it help me kill. Big monster creatures and uh, is the um, axe of corn unwieldy? Or no, I think it's just a specialist weapon. Okay. So normally you won't get plus one attack, but having so two, they're both, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so there's two lots of those. Oh, they've also both got the locus of fury, I think it's called, where you get the hatred for him and his unit. Mm. And they both go. Ouch. Yeah, they, they both they both hit pretty hard because because on the juggernauts they get like six attacks on the charge sort of thing. At weapon score seven, initiative six or something, obscene. They're, they're, they're re- they hit really hard. But, but I, I learned in the test games that they didn't have a three plus save like they used to do on a juggernaut. Um, I, they actually are quite weak, so if you do get to hit them, they, they fall over pretty quick. But they got, they got 40, 40, hounds, 40 hound wounds to get through before you hit them. Um, so then the next part of the list is two Zinch Heralds, level three on discs with nothing. So I'm bothered with giving them any extra extra gear. The whole point of them is to summon. Um, they're like just little batteries, basically, with the master level threes. Then I've got two units of eleven horrors, so the extra extra dice there. Um, they've both got icons, so that again to go with the summoning idea is that it lets me summon in uh, units. Each unit obviously gets an auto deep strike, and another unit's deep striking d6 less. Uh, round near the icon, and then I've got two units of twenty hounds, flesh hounds of corn, that is, and then you know fifteen flesh hounds of corn, and that's the that's that's sixteen fifty, and the the idea of the list, just looking at it on paper, is that the hounds and the heralds all scout forward. I've got a unit fifteen that's screen at the front, so that I can then counter charge with the two units of twenty. Um, then I've got the little two two blocks of eleven horrors at the back with the heralds. And they just sit churning out these, uh, depending on what I'm playing, because it'll make a difference. Um, but most of the time, like, like I said before, with what's on the painting table, is going to be plague drones and demonettes. And uh, then the odd screamers as well, if I need the boosters. Uh, and I've got a load of Zinch Heralds as well. And uh, one Lord of Change, 
though I'd like some more. Um, and that's basically the, the the whole idea is just to uh, flood the board. I mean, against flyers, the list has obviously got nothing to do with flyers, but the idea is just to. Uh, I, unfortunately, I didn't take any pictures of my game against James Ramsey, um, where I played against him when he had a Storm Raven, but um, I completely filled uh, my board's board half. We played Harry Anvil, and I just filled the entire board with just hound models because those bases take up a lot of space. And uh, if you add in summoning units to that as well, uh, you just you just completely have no they have nowhere to go, and that's that's going to be my tactic against flyers. It's just stop them from going anywhere. Flying monsters creatures, uh, obviously they can maneuver a little a little better, but and they can fly off the board and not too fussed that way, and they can shoot me at close range. But um, against them, I'm just going to be like, well, what damage really are they going to do to my hounds that I care about? It's not amazing. And I'm just going to kill everything they've got on the ground, and they have to land to capture objectives, otherwise not get anywhere. So I just beat them on Maelstrom, and uh, they play the actual mission itself against stuff like that. Uh, Imperial Knights just tie them up, tie them up all day with the hounds. They can get some sixes, but it's only a small blast, so yeah. Uh, and just keep throwing in wave after wave of of fodder, demonette fodder or something at them, uh, or or uh, play bearer fodder. Sorry, that is just to try and glance them to death. But yeah, just tie them up and just kill. The little tiny armor that they have left, um, and then the other lists is probably the demons. It's just going to be on them summon offs. So just see how that see, depends what they, what the composition of their army is and how how, it's, it's how I'm going to play against them. But uh, and everyone else just depends what they have, I guess. So I saw you were using Bellacor. Yeah, scrapped him. <laughs> he seemed like a really good answer to to knights, though. So. Oh, he was. He was. He Bellacor was a beaut and a guaranteed um, invisible for the uh, for the for the, uh, the the dogs as well, the cornhounds. Yeah, but it did suck. But I mean, we talked about it quite a bit. Me and me and James. Uh, Bellacor was really good. The, the guaranteed invisibility was nice, but it was only on one unit, so it's just like they just ignore that ignore that unit and just fire the other stuff. So it was kind of like mm, kind of pointless. Um. Also, yeah, he 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 can die quite quite easily if if you let him. He has, to, he has to land and risk himself for a turn against some armies. He's a delicate, he's a bit delicate. But mm. um, we just decided that that the summoning idea was really strong. So Bellacor didn't contribute that much to the army overall, um, and the, the the idea of just flooding the board and summoning loads of extra guys. Was just stronger, especially at low points level. Um, at eighteen fifty and stuff, where you can get even more power dice, but uh, summoning's not as strong as it is at lower points because they have your opponent's not got as big an army to fight off the new army that you're spawning. And because we've cap, they've got a cap on power dice to summon at the GT. At the higher points level, uh, if it was higher points level, so there's it, it won't make much. It's pointless uh, trying to. Throw more mass, more more power dice in there. So at lower points level, it's uh, summoning. It's just sick, just absolute abuse. So I've just got to go and try and abuse that as much as I can. So what are your uh, answers to um, adamantine lance? That's the important thing. Uh, yeah, as I said before, I'm just going to tie up, just uh, throw in hounds, and then after a few turns of them hitting them, uh, throw in. Well, whatever I've summoned, and then 
<clears throat> and then like have this one unit of hounds just dodging about or screamers that have summoned to go and kill uh, their other bits of their army. It's literally just gonna just gonna try and tie them up with with Nurgle stuff as well. I uh, like play drones and uh, play bearers and just try and glance them a bit. But I'm not fussed about trying to kill them. Just try, just just like block them off because uh, if I can pin them in with like one unit of hounds. If they, if they set up, say, in the middle, I scout forward and then just move forward and literally just pin them in. They can't obviously mm. move through me or over me because they can't fly. They're just stuck where they are. So that's, that's going to be my tactic against, the, against them. It's just, just limit their movement. It's like playing against flyers. Limit where they can go. So it's a very strategic sort of um, tricky way of playing as opposed to just dealing with them head on or, or yeah, getting rid of them. It's, it's next level shit, guys. It's next level <laughs> shit. <laughs> Well, yeah, if you want to um, keep up with any of the stuff that we are doing, we post on the Facebook, do check it out. It's facebook.com forward slash AOC podcast. And thank you guys very much for putting those pictures up um, for your practice weekends. I'm sure we'll see more of those. And uh, hopefully we'll get some pictures and updates from the uh, Heat 3 um, this coming weekend as well, if we can uh, yeah. give Robbo a nudge and remind him to do that. Be I'll be around, but I'll do my best. There may not be the best I'll, I'll pictures, and... but there might be... <laughs> I'll try and do some. Um, I'll, right. I'll probably, I'll probably like, I'll take a load of pictures of my games, and then I'll, I'll, I'll try and do like a, uh, a battle report summary or something after each day or after the weekend or during the games or whatever. But on like our practice weekend, I'll try, I'll try and just spam. <laughs> I'll try and get a picture of it. Every table each round to put on the forty k page, the GT page. So mm. I'll post a link over and copy some across for the more interesting ones. Yeah, if you get us a. Um... If you could get us a, a, a just a pairings thing, that would be cool for each round. That would be brilliant, really useful. Yeah, I'll try and make sure that's up as long as I can work when the when spreadsheet. You, when, you're sitting in front of your, yeah, when you're sitting in front of your uh, laptop, just uh, snap a picture off. That would be wonderful. Yeah, that would be good. So talking of Facebook, I know we've had a few questions and queries from your post up today, Alex. So. Uh, yeah, we've had a few people sort of asking general questions. Obviously, it's nice to know that we have listeners. Um, we're not doing this to our friends and family. Um, just some people just wanted to ask some questions. Uh, they mainly seem to be in around um, sort of tournament meta and uh, how to deal with certain things and um, uh, experiences at tournaments as well. So let's go through some of these. Uh, if you would like to get involved with questions in the future, um, on a weekend, we will generally post up in advance when we're recording. Um, so if you pay attention... Um, you can get some questions in, and we'll try and look through them. So, um, James Brown said, Never having been to a tourney, maybe a view from experienced tournament players on what to expect and possibly how best to prepare for your first tournament. Well, uh, as Mr. Collins said, um, we are looking to put forward a, a segment specifically dealing with that, uh, with our very own Gareth Donnelly in the near future. Um, so hopefully we'll get you a nice uh, tournament primer um, in the coming weeks. Um, that would be pretty cool. Uh, Chris Gent or Gent? I can never remember how you're supposed to say it. Does anyone know? If we say it Gent. both ways, then we have to be right, but also wrong. So. Chris Gent, um, if you were running a tournament in six months' time, what format and comp, if any, would you use, given the fluidity of rules and meta-busting new unit releases? Um, you are the preeminent authority in running tournaments out of our little group. Um, Matt, so 
how would you run a tournament in six months' time? Uh, I'd probably go off what I know now. Say you can have two sources, for want of a better word. So allow people to take two detachments of whatever kind they want, including formations, ally, CAD, no double CAD, which I think some tournaments in America are allowing, but it seems a bit crazy. No self-allying and just let people play limited as per the book, in a way. Hopefully that makes some kind of sense. How are you feeling about the um, the missions at the moment? Obviously the... GT missions are uh, hotly debated. Um, I know they're obviously based off the uh, the ETC missions. Um, not exactly the same, but in a very sort of similar uh, form. Going off a lot of the feedback we've had, a lot of the feedback from the Brighton Heat, which normally just use Eternal War missions in that area anyway. They normally don't play Maelstrom. A lot of the feedback there was don't use Maelstrom mm. from a lot of the local guys. Whereas when we went to Cardiff, a lot of the guys there really enjoyed the Maelstrom and having a bit extra in the missions. So I think after the Warrington Heat, all the GT committee are going to get together, review the feedback from all the heats, and see if anything needs changing or switching up for the final. So that should be a good... I really enjoyed the dynamicism of um, the, the parallel missions, but I know... Many people out there feel as if it increases the random element a lot more. Um, you know, obviously, if someone draws a load of uh, easily to secure uh, objectives in the, in the Maelstrom missions, then that sort of unbalances it and takes away from player skill. But I really like the way that you guys comped the cards, um, so that so there was only one set of objectives each. There was only a maximum of two points rather than the random number of points. And obviously the way that you weighted it in like a 10-6-4 um, uh, method for 10 for the primary, which is always an eternal war, 6 for the maelstrom and 4 for the, for the quote-unquote secondaries. Um, yeah. that we used to. I, I, really, I, I really think that balanced it out well and it allowed you to play in a, in a reactive style with, with the, the, the main mission in mind as well. So I, I personally enjoyed it. With you saying there's a bit more luck, I, I do agree there's a bit of a luck in drawing cards, but then you've also got look of dice, look of terrain on your board, look of opponent, look at match-up. So I don't think it's something that you can concentrate too much on within a game because everything leading up to drawing that card has been random bit of luck. So I think it's just another element which some players can look at as in a game. Maybe it does all go against you. But in another game you might have dice go against you or it might be... Rhino Marines against Wave Serpent Spam and you go second. <laughs> yeah. It's, there's so many little things. I think it's just another factor of 40k in this day and age. People love excuses, Matt. That's what it is. Yep. Um, well, that's, we'll, obviously we'll, we'll, we'll probably come back to that after Heat 3. That, that'll be an interesting discussion as we move towards the, uh, the finals next year. Um, Paul Bridge asks, as knights seem to be an in-thing at the moment, what kind of armies are you seeing that can counter them and still win tournaments? I have just purchased a knight, as I want to use one as an ally for my space wolves, but which one should I use, the paladin or errant? So let's ask the father of the adamantium lance, Jesse. Hello. Uh, so... Honestly, the biggest counter to Imperial Knights has been 
the few armies that want to dedicate to being able to stretch a shield. Otherwise, Imperial Knights beat Imperial Knights. I mean, you have a lot of you. The, if you're worried about Imperial Knights, you build the Errant. You have your Melta Cannon. Hopefully, you get first shot. You can get some shots through. But usually, that that's been the case. Uh, I mean, you see things in the states here. We have we have Strength Ten Thunderwolves. Hmm. Um, they could be scary, but at the end of the day, it's it's basically come down to there's not been a lot I've been afraid to throw against a lance. Uh, it's mostly actually been Tal that scared me the most because they're able to take a bunch of cheap Melta suits. And it's like, okay, they throw away a 52-point suit to get a Melta shot. That and Fire Dragons. Fire Dragons and Wave Serpents. No bueno. I, uh, I played it. Sorry, well, I, played it at BF, I played it at BFS, and I found two units of Fire Dragons and Wave Serpents, threw away both Wraith Knights to make sure the Fire Dragons were out of their Wave Serpents, and then proceeded to do fine. Hmm. Yeah, I found with my knights, they've died when things have got in several sides or, like Jeff was saying, other knights. Normally when two knights charge each other, it's mutual death as they both beat the crap out of each other. But exactly, and the big the big thing is, even with one Imperial Knight, it's a huge threat because if one Imperial Knight gets in and it has like one or two hull points left, it can easily charge in, still kill an Imperial Knight, and when you're only taking one or two of them as a support, you have an army around it, whereas an Adamantium Lance player does not. Typically. Uh, a lot of people have started taking Legion of the Damned. Um, what are your thoughts on those? As an answer? A lot less impressed with Legion of the Damned than I am with individual crisis suits and all that. Hmm. Uh, you know, usually you get one squad. To, I'm never worried about the Melta. I mean, not the Melta, the uh, Ignores cover portion of them. Yep. I think Legion of the Damned are much better suited to killing Wave Serpents than they are Imperial Knights. Hmm. Um, and you would recommend that he goes for the Errant or the Paladin? The Errant, the one with the Melta Cannon. If yeah. you're specifically saying, how do I kill Imperial Knights, the Melta Cannon, that way there, you can hopefully just, you know, you might get lucky, get a pen on, on an Imperial Knight. Uh, another Imperial Knight, you have a much better chance versus the Lance. You get a pen in, you might kill it. I mean, I had I had one Errant call, uh, strip four hull points off on turn one, and then strip another four hole points off on turn two, the same error shooting at another guy's night error at uh, Nova. I mean, you, you, just, you get lucky. I think with his spatial farming as well, with the slightly shorter range, a lot of the spatial farmers I've seen want to push forward a little bit more. So you'll be more in support of the rest of your army. And that's where you'll struggle a little bit because you'll be easy enough to get AP3 mix in there, but having the large blast of AP2. No, scare some people. I do have a very big question for you guys. Is this coming from a, a fellow UK guy where Forge World is openly allowed? If so, I would also recommend the Lancer because Lancer beats Imperial Knights in close combat. He's actually living in Denmark, so uh... oh, it's yes, I know Paul quite well actually. I've met him, I just clicked on his picture then and noticed. Okay, well, if they allow Forge World. Then the the Lancer we found beats Imperial Knights really well. Yeah, the, the uh, Forge World Knights other are, are really good, right? For yeah, um, the so the Archeron is decent at doing it because mm. it'll it'll almost never roll a one on a destroyer weapons table. The the Lancer though is the real is the real big one because it gets a swing first on the turn it charges, barring no terrain issues, mm. and it's also um, other Imperial Knights are minus one to hit it, and it gets an invulnerable save in close combat. 
So there is a possibility for you to charge in, kill somebody's Imperial Knight, and get out without having any problems. Um, and and they're that, also faster. Uh, but they are 400 points. Um, so a little bit more. Of yeah, but I mean, we're talking... We're we're talking a thirty point difference. Yeah. That basically ensures that you kill an Imperial Knight versus maybe. You know, and like I said, the big thing being the big thing with the Lancer is it's also a lot faster with, with the flank speed run. Hmm. So if you had the option for it and you just only want to kill an Imperial Knight or other like super heavies, like gargantuans and super heavy walkers, the Lancer's the way to go. Yeah, that, that initiative bonus. Obviously, really mm -hmm. swings it heavily in your favor, definitely. Um, and and the fact that you know, with you charging in, you're going to have five attack. They have base one additional attack, and they're going to be swinging back with three attacks and only hitting on a five plus. Is that's right, because they're minus they're one probably, to hit as well as. Yeah. Yep, they're minus one to hit. You swing first. You have more attacks, and you have an invulnerable save in close combat. So there you go. Um, you need to uh, be putting in an order for a Serestus Knight Lancer if you want to be uh, getting on some night-to-night -night head on combat. Uh, the next question is from John Holland. Um, and he's got uh, quite, a, quite a wide question. Uh, he says, how to work, he wants to know how to work around and beat the current meta lists. So we've covered knights pretty well there. Um, he wants to know how to beat Fly Monstrous Creature Demons and Eldar, and he wants to know, is it possible to have an all-comers list? Um, Jesse, do you think it's possible to have an all-comers list? In yes, edition? and honestly, if you were looking to beat if you were looking to beat those uh, in particular in the meta, then I would say Tau is the way to go, because in particular, mm. Tau matches up well against Flying Demons, it also matches up well against Wave Serpents, and you can definitely match up well against uh, against um, Adamantium Lance with a ton of ways to split the shields. Back to earlier in the discussion, we were talking about nine broadsides. Nine broadsides seems to fit well in all of those matchups. As long as you have the mobility to get them in, in shooting of uh, Wave Serpents. That's my opinion. Now, I look at least forward here to in the seeing States. you uh, trying out lots of, uh, lots of Tau stuff in future uh, Battle Report videos on your channel. We're going to have uh, we're going to have a huge swing of it. I think Trevor Rose actually been toying around with a bunch of ideas. Have you had a look at any uh, the new um, Riptide variant? I have. I personally have not. Uh, Justin Cook has. I believe he is. I believe he really really likes it. The the new Forge World one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure he's actually um, what we in the business would call in love with it. But I I myself have not really looked into it so. Uh, but he likes big dumb idiots, so I mean, <laughs> hey, it works. Uh, he loves you then. Obviously, the problem that's we have exactly is, it. Obviously, the problem we have is the fact that it is still experimental and could get the Avana treatment um, and get nerfed. But yeah, it's 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 it, it it jumped out to me. It looked really quite nice. It's got hit and run and like loads of AP two torrent template stuff, and yeah, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. I quite like it. Um, and it's only two hundred and thirty points. So it's worth looking up, you uh, Utah players, if you play in a meta where you're allowed Forge World. Um, actually, that, that brings me back to, I, I was listening to um, you guys on the most recent 11th Company, um, and you were having sort of a back and forth with Neil about uh, the use of Forge World and um, 
sort of uh, how the you, you believe like the East Coast is probably going to have to start accepting Forge. I don't know. Nova's going to use it next year. I think Neil said that he was looking at pretty much using it. Uh, uh, next year's 11th company as well um, do you think that Forge World is going to become the tournament standard uh, honestly I don't see why not frankly it doesn't break the game uh, and it shakes it up it's not like it used to be uh, there is a lot less in the line of game breaking mechanics that are coming out of Forge World uh, I mean I, I just I think Forge World's fine where it's at so I, I'm kind of I mean, the thing is, more and more of the U.S. is switching to it with Adepticon allowing everything now. So, I mean, it's it, it's a matter of we're going to have no choice but to follow suit on the East Coast. The biggest problem, the biggest concern that it's been for the past uh, couple of years has been the fact that it's, you know, rules are everywhere, but they've kind of consolidated a lot. So, you now it's just a matter of learning them for everybody. Um, what about you, Matt? Obviously, we're playing... Um... Uh, Forge World at the uh, GT heats, and I'm presuming we'll do so at the uh, at the grand finals. And Cali's using Forge World as well. Is is Forge World now an accepted standard in the UK? I think it's becoming more and more so. Whereas a couple of years ago, you wouldn't really see any of it. Maybe one or two events would have it, and they'd be a bit on the side, a bit special. Whereas now you've got the GT, which a lot of events follow off and base off, mm. as the majority of it. So, yeah, I think within reason, I can see it being accepted a lot more, but not exceptionally taking off. So there's still a lot of armies that you've seen in the top five, top ten events aren't too forward heavy, maybe a little bit here or there, but they don't seem to be causing massive impact as some people feared. I, I think it definitely I have a needs question to be, for you. Yeah, go on, go on. I'm sorry. My question was going to be, do you guys allow actual Forge World armies or not? Because here in the States, none of the tournaments allow Forge World armies. No, we don't allow the Forge okay. World list. Now that, was, that was what I wanted to just go, go on to as well. Obviously, it's not going to be open season and allowing anything. Now, we sort of kind of touched on it a little bit last week, and I know um, you guys were talking about it on the 11th Company um, recent episode as well, but clearly some things are not meant for competitive play sub-2,000 points in, in, in Forge World. Um, are we going to have to start sort of getting our hands dirty and coming up with a ban list or... You know, because it's quite difficult to scale what is and what isn't allowed. Um, I know Frontline Gaming have done that exactly that for their events, and then I know Ramsey's also had some ideas because he knows a lot. Forge World is one of the guys over here who knows more about it. But we've been talking within the GT committee as well of possibly doing that and now having a ban or an allow list rather than the 400-point cap we've got at the moment, mm. which is kind of our ban allow limit. Because a lot of things below that aren't your big strength, ignore cover blasts, whereas there's one or two things who unfortunately have slipped through, such as the Typhon or the Malkador. Yeah. Yeah. But it's one of those where we're just going to have to see how it goes for now. That's We've always said the pack we put out will be the same for all the heats. And then it might change for the final. We'll have to see. 
Uh, just obviously, I'm not going to hold you to this, but is your opinion that the Typhon and the Malkador shouldn't be allowed? Uh, a lot of people seem to agree that anything that has big templates, big blasts that are AP 1 or 2 or strength D with ignore cover. But, yeah, it's it's that's that's all Frontline did for all of their bands. Is anything AP AP one or two that ignores cover is not allowed at a four draw. And um, what's your what's your reasoning behind that for people that might not understand as to why that's not not worth using or sorry not not worth allowing? I think it's more. Anything that can just delete huge amounts, which there's nothing you can really do about. Mm. Whereas a lot of things, such as I know knights in combat, yeah, they've got that little blast, but that's in combat where armies can avoid them and play around them when there's not much you can do to hide or avoid them because they've got the big range, the big large size blasts, and they're just ignoring all your saves. Then it's a little bit tougher to deal with and counter against. Yeah, it it basically just invalidates a lot of uh, a lot of builds, and a lot of people have no answer to it at all. Um, then obviously people will then then say, well, you know, there's stuff in the main rule book which is equally as as bent as that. That shouldn't be in there. Um, how do you? I mean, <laughs> you you guys at the GT have already comped stuff. In the main rulebook, with the invisibility comp, the reroll saves comp, the summoning, summon uh, the conjuration, um, warp charge stuff as well. Um, are you? Is that sort of flexible? Are you still looking to to to, to if something else comes along, you're going to be looking at comping that as well. Like what? Do you have different standards between what's in 40k main and what's in in Forge World? Do you have like a little bit more leeway with 40k main than you would say with? Um, banning stuff from Forge World. I know me personally. I'm not too up with Forge World or things that are involved, so I'm probably mm. not the best out of the guys to answer that. But I do know, looking towards next year, a couple of the committee guys want some harsher comps involved. A couple of want lighter comp. Because at the end of the day, we all there's just five of us with all our own opinions. So. Mm. As a group, we've got to try and decide what's best for the events, and a lot of it is what the players want. It's like we put on Facebook uh, votes before we made all the initial decisions to see what people wanted, rather than just the five of us saying, "Oh, this is how we want to play it." So we're probably is after that this year, is that a fair way of doing things though? Because obviously that's going to be weighted heavily against you know the people that do want to use things. You know, if anyone. The number of people that do want to take, say, for example, a Typhon is is always going to be lower than the number of people that either don't care or feel strongly against it. Well, I think because we're trying to run an event which is relying on the players coming and buying tickets mm. and turn up to the events, if the majority of potential attendees is, like you say, massively against something, whereas there's a few that are, then we've got to try and do what's best for the everybody as a whole, rather than, rather than yeah. yeah. Which at the end of the day, no matter what decision you make, somebody's going to be unhappy or miss out. Mm. So we've just got to try and make that somebody or a couple of people as few 
an amount as possible. I mean, I'm just trying to play devil's advocate here. I'm not like sort of trying to be critical or whatever. I'm, I'm generally interested into the way that you guys, because it's, it's such a very difficult decision to make. I mean, you're, you're saying, obviously, you're looking at um, what's going to encourage people to attend tournaments and, and obviously turn up to the heats. And, and the heat numbers have been a little bit down than they were last year. Um, and that's obviously down to a number of reasons. That's down to, you know, like a new addition, how difficult it is to keep up with everything that's going on, um, you know, um, people's opinions on on rules pack and missions and what have you and uh, and all manner of different things. Um, it, it must be very difficult to to sort of try and put things in black and white. There must be so many sort of grey areas when you're thinking, well, yeah, this is this specific thing is spoiling people's fun and putting them off turning up, but it's it's a part of the game and we should let it run rather than. Maybe looking at Forge World and something that might again, you know, spoiling people's fun, whatever. But because it's not a part of the core game, it might be easier to sort of just say, "Well, we're gonna we're gonna not allow that." I think my mic might have been on mute, possibly. Then I think it was. <laughs> <clears throat> Let's go. Yes. So, what was the question again? Oh, fuck me. <laughs> 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 yeah, about um, is it easier to just um, block things out because they're part of Forge World rather than part of the the main forty k? Because there's bent stuff in main forty k. Uh, very briefly, I'd say yes because everybody knows forty k and plays by that book. The majority of people don't know Forge World. Hmm. So I think if you're introducing less for them to learn, people would be more acceptant of Forge World. Yeah. So I know there's still may, people's main gripe is there's too much there to learn, as well as having to learn all 40k, all the new books, especially the pace things are coming out these days. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly what I was thinking. I'm, I, for me, I've never really had any problem with like overpoweredness in Forge World in terms of sixth and seventh, but there's just it's keeping track of it all, and it's not even just buying the books because obviously that's a huge expense anyway. The books are pretty pretty weighty and they're quite expensive to keep just to keep up with. But a lot of the time, you'll buy a book and a unit in there will be invalidated within six months because it will be in a new book, um, and there's no. There's no list of, of where each unit, you know, which current rules versions you're using. You know, it's difficult. It's just really difficult to keep track. And when you're putting that on top of a new codex release pretty much every six weeks, plus data slates, plus expansions, you know, like uh, it, it's just too much for people to consume. So I can see that, you know, drawing the line at, at Forge World is, is a logical is a logical thing to do. That that definitely makes sense. It is a total thankless task, isn't it? The GT boys have got, you know, mm. to try to marry the game up for everyone is is virtually impossible. So I think that's why you've probably got to be either let it in or ban it outright. And if people turn up, then that's brilliant. <laughs> and if they don't, then, um, then yeah, there's, there's got to be some problem with it somewhere. I think the main problem with, with attendance is people don't know what, what is legal and if you mm. don't know what's legal, what you're up against then you're less likely to go uh, maybe I'm not quite ready for this maybe I won't go so it's um, yeah it's, it's a tough tough job and I've won even though I haven't gone to a GT uh, heat this year 
really happy that the guys have, are sticking by, you know, their their best intentions. Because I mean, without them, there wouldn't be a GT, and the pool of players would be virtually zilch. So it's um, yeah, it's a tough job, and yeah. Jesse, you talk to a lot of the uh, the US guys, a lot of the tournament organisers over there. Um, how are they dealing with that sort of problem? Um, obviously, you've got like very, very different um, organisations on the East Coast and the West Coast. Uh, so one big thing is the big difference between East Coast and West Coast is fundamental core changes to the game. Uh, the East Coast, in theory, not in practice, because there are changes that end up always happening, you know, and that's just an FAQs that people, you know, people disagree on. But big thing is uh, not changing the core differences in the game. So, you know, on the West Coast, they have two plus rerollable uh, adjustment. Uh, they have your guys' invisibility nerf uh, and all that. Now, on the East Coast, we just play. Um, but the other big difference is, you know, whereas they also nerf those, they, they allow four draw. And our whole thing is. A forge world itself, and even my, you know, myself reading and talking with uh, Ramsey a lot, I haven't really come across a lot that's like crazy in forge world. The big problem is, you know, trying to trying to balance the game between trying to balance the game between, you know, doing well and just having things allowed that just remove you from the game. Period. So. That's been that's been kind of our big their their big sticking point. I'm not too involved in those decisions, but we'll uh, we'll see what happens, especially once it comes to the East Coast. Because once it comes to the East Coast, that's where I'll get more involved in the TO discussions and all that. Um, speaking about um, four jaws, have any of you guys taken a look at the um, the new the new chaos? book the war machines of the lost and the dying so good i i have taken what little looks ramsey has given me into awesome things uh i'm still waiting to find a copy because i don't pay for forge world books much like forge world models and other such large models as well well i mean i pay for forge world models just not not, i don't pay forge world (laughs) china um, we should really stop doing that. It's really bad. Um, <laughs> you gotta be careful. GW's gonna see you guys for being an advertisement for uh, Ally Express, well, since they can't go after Alibaba. We're a uh, we're a we're a public spoken word podcast that doesn't monetize our content, so we're fine. We have freedom they, of speech. They should, I hear, I hear we exported that out you to uh, America as well. Might get some funding. Just up you wait. <laughs> I, I, oh, gave up, I, I gave up. On GW, I gave up on GW. I gave up on GW sponsorship or support a long time ago. So if AliExpress wants to put some money from their from their fake nonsense IPO, um, then that's cool. No worries. I'll send them Doesn't the old GW bashing come into our little petition thing as well? That's been on the news lately. Oh, it has. Yeah. Um, I I I read that through, and it's really badly written. But the sentiments, I, I I can get behind the sentiment. It's it's really naive and quite poorly put together, but the sentiments hold true. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, for anyone who's not seen that, it's... Oh, let me just find what it is. It's on every Facebook group ever, but I'm not putting it on our Facebook. Yeah, it's it's a... All it is is a petition to make GW realise they sell a game, not a a collectible hobby. Yeah. 
there's about there's three or four points just saying things like don't do direct exclusive models make them available for everybody realize gamers are playing games and support their games and tournaments and the huge tournament team change your website to be hobby and gaming and change your prices to make them cheaper um, so, and i expect zero yeah well they're not going to make their prices cheaper so good luck for that Currently, there's nine and a half thousand signatures, so it's not enough. There. That's definitely not enough. It's definitely not enough. It's impressive, though, um, and it do, it definitely shows like a wellspring of support and sentiment. Um, but you know, if you've ever spoken to anyone that works for Games Workshop, yeah, like, here's the problem: no matter, even if they had every person on the planet sign that petition, all it's going to do is validate to GW that they make the best hobby thing ever mm. that's all that's all we're doing is we're val we're in some sick way validating gw's opinion of we make the best models in the world and everybody loves us for it it's like making cars but not engines isn't it so like if yeah. all of a sudden said we're not going to make any more engines we're just going to make the the chassis well listen <laughs> the, the, the logical conclusion to this whole business practice that they're going is more and more people are going to discover you know, high quality recasts from eastern areas of the world. Um, so that the price thing's not really a huge issue. If you can afford to pay for it, you will. If you can't afford to pay for it, you'll either use, um, you know, representative models or you'll find another place to buy your miniatures from. Um, the issue that I have with Games Workshop is the lack of support for their rule set. You know, you can't call a company Games Workshop and then pretend you don't make a game. That's that, that's 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 a that's the problem. And when you charge such high amounts of money for your rules as well, um, you know they're not they're not collectible books. They're you know they don't go out of print. They're still you know they can buy you can buy them forever. Yes, they look really nice. Yes, they put a lot of time and effort into it. I appreciate that. But you know the the the, the, the actual rules that they write are not fabulously put together, and it definitely would benefit from. Uh, a little bit more uh, attention from them. Um, now, <clears throat> I'm sure people will turn around. I've seen a lot of people turn around and say, well, you guys were asking for more regular releases. Um, I'm sorry. I didn't realize I wasn't on what <laughs> Oh, my God. What was that? <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> I, just, I just made a random noise to, to, one of our, to one of our D&D guys, and I looked at my thing because the conversation up? just stopped, and I went, Oh, look at that. I'm not on mute. <laughs> oh, I hope that came out of your mouth. <laughs> it was one of the chipmunks in the beard, wasn't it? Oh, good God. Yeah, so it was, it was one of the ferrets. Stupid Alvin. That was definitely theory. It's all right. Where do you think Andy got his hamster from? I mounted it from my beard. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Hey, leave, leave Luna out of this. Luna. <laughs> so, Andy, you're basically confirming you did not pick the name of your hamster, pretty much. No, I, I, I was in on this. I love uh, Luna um, Lovegood from uh, Harry Andy, Potter. man up. Say Absolutely. no. Say no. Loud and proud, guys. Loud and proud. Love her. Oh, it's like Jesse and Taylor Swift all over again. Oh, Taylor Swift. I can get behind this, Jesse. Oh, my... I'm right? Taylor, get behind Taylor Swift. Internet 5. <laughs> This is why oh. this is why the Warhammer Forty Thousand community will never be able to mobilise itself in any way and we need to actually get this. Games Workshop to uh, change anything. That's we need how. to end this and move on now. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> uh, on that note, uh, we are going to get into some tournament reports. 
um, some player profiles. So let's get into that right now. Hello, uh, my name is James Ramsey, and I'm here with Thomas Donisland. Hello, hello, James. Um, hi. Um, so we've we've got you on um, before to talk with Matt about your about the ETC um, and the Danish ETC team, but uh, we kind of wanted to know a bit more about you as a person and as a player, because obviously people um, know you from Nova, but of course you've uh, been done played games before then, so we, we kind of want to find out who you are. So um, could you tell us what what sort of like what? Uh, you know, we had a brief chat in Nova, and you told me that you haven't played um, 40k like for that long recently. So, what got, kind of got you back into it, or like what sort of like previous um, experience do you have with 40k? Yeah. So I started playing 40k when I was 15 or 16 years old. Uh, played for many years, and then uh, held a, a break uh, for about 10 years, and started again. Uh, one and a half year ago, one year ago, uh, and it was actually two of my friends, uh, um, two uh, two players who are on the ETC team, uh, didn't see the ETC team for a couple of years, and many years uh, running, uh, that, that uh, got me convinced that I should uh, start playing again by talking about how great the competitive scene was in the ETC and also other tournaments. So in your previous 40k experience, I used to do a lot of tournaments, travel to UK for the, the, the GTs that time and, uh, and also in Denmark. Uh, and uh, that was one of the big motivations. And when I heard there was a strong competitive scene in, in 40k, I, I was more or less hooked into play, playing again. And then I slowly built up, uh, I found, found my own models and, and slowly built up uh, some current armies and then got, got rolling again. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of quite quite a quite a common theme, isn't it? Where people um, play when they're sort of in their younger years, and then they they have a bit of a break, and then they come back to it. And normally, I do find it is something like the ETC or like a a competitive scene that gets people back into it. Um, and like all a couple of friends just chatting about it, it kind of gets you gets you the uh, 40k juice going again and brings back all those memories that you had. Yes. That's good. Um, so like, what what is like your like what's sounds like your normal army? Like, what do you what do you play so uh, for the, when I started playing again I played a lot of Tau uh, so what I did was I studied what, what codexes was doing good in tournaments and saw Tau and Eldar also Necrons doing good at the time uh, and then I decided upon Tau because I had a lot of Tau models um, and then it gradually expanded the Tau army into an Eldar army uh, so Tau in 6th edition yeah good old uh, Tau <laughs> It was very good, and it was also yeah, doing really, really good at the prior prior ETC uh, qualifier. Um, and then uh, I more, got more and more hooked into the Elder scene, and I decided uh, when Seven uh, dropped uh, that I wanted to, to do a full shift into Elder. I had built it up um, and bought a lot of models, and also had a lot of Elder for the old days. Elder was one of my very first armies many, many years ago. 
Uh, and then I just started experimenting with Elder uh, and Elder and Dark Elder together, not Beast Pack. Initially, I knew, I knew I wanted Beast Pack, but I wanted to, to test out different combinations before I ended up uh, with a, like a clean Beast Pack. So I tried out all sorts of different army teams, small tournaments and uh, test games and so on. And then gradually uh, evolved my Beast Pack army, which I've played until yeah, recently. That sounds good. Yeah, it's like a, an organic kind of growth from sort of transitioning from a, I guess, like kind of a shooty elder army you start off with, like a Tau Darling and shooty elder, yeah. and then and then going more towards uh, you know a shooty with with obviously a big combat element with the beast pack. I think quite a few people seem to seem to like that approach, shouldn't they? Because it was a normal elder they with like wraith knights things. They were good at combat, but there were some things they just couldn't deal with. Whereas the beast pack was just so flexible. It's yeah, just yeah. a very yeah. good army. Um, yeah. And obviously, you know, you've, you've uh, at Nova, you had a lot of accolades for your painting as well. You've got a, your armor was really nicely painted, which is maybe I guess it's a bit unfair to say like top players generally don't aren't the best painters normally. They kind of uh, we're known for maybe skipping on painting, whereas uh, obviously your army was really nicely painted. So it's uh, it was nice to see someone who can kind of do both, kind of. Which yeah. is, uh, yeah, thank you, thank you. Uh, so I also have painted for many years, but actually, when I started out this time around, I decided upon. Uh, not to paint them, so go overboard painting it, uh, but but I ended doing it anyway, so <laughs> I couldn't help <laughs> yeah. myself. So, yeah. yeah, I always find that it's like you you kind of have a vision. Oh, I'm not going to paint too well. Then you spend like ten hours on like one vehicle. And you're like, oh, I just I can't have one yeah. vehicle look like that. I've got to have every arm and look like that. So yeah, yeah. it's uh, it's a tricky mix because you don't you don't want to put too much time into it because you feel like well, if I'm not going to put like as much time as I can into it, then it's not going to work. But yeah. Um, so uh, before before we go into like Nova, I know you met Matt Robertson at um, Kiel in Germany. Yes. Big yes. So like, what, how did how did you guys meet? Like, did you play or what, what happened? Um, so uh, when we went to Germany for Kiel, uh, me and a guy called Oliver and two other guys uh, from Denmark went. Uh, I know uh, I knew there was uh, one English guy uh, coming to uh, uh, to the tournament, and the rest was uh, from Germany, and then also a few from Denmark. Um, and actually, I heard the name on the 40k Global podcast, so I could recognize the name. I also talked to Oliver about it. So when we went down there, we uh, said hello and um, talked about a bit uh, in the, during the games. We didn't play in the games. Uh, Matt started out doing really, really well at the, 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 at the tournament, and then he, he fell a bit uh, uh, near the top. Um, so, well, I wonder if uh, alcohol was involved in that. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't think it was. Uh, <laughs> 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 he, did, he did better on day one than day two. Yeah. <laughs> Much better. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so uh, we didn't. Uh, so we just passed him uh, on the way up. Um, so we didn't get to play him. So. Well, well, it was a really good tournament, and I can really can strongly uh, recommend that for any p- players around the world because it is uh, actually quite a good tournament, very very good uh, uh, terrain, and uh, very nice tables. And uh, there's a there's this very big um, uh, what do you call it? A very big. Uh, uh, Preconception that the Germans don't want to speak English, and there was uh, there was the fast point from the truth. It was everything was uh, spoken in English, and uh, was very very uh, they were very mindful of, of of the tournament happening in English, and that was very very good. So it was, it was a super tournament, very enjoyable. Yeah, I saw some of the pictures on 
40 Kings, um, the German blog, and a uh, few of their... I've, I've got a cousin who's from Germany, and he went to that tournament. And um, some of the terrain, the, the pictures from some of the um, boards, terrain looked really nice. Um, really, you know, a lot of time had gone to that terrain, not just to make it suitable for gaming, but also to make it like look nice on the table, which is always good. And... You know, I'm sure the, um, the Germans are known for for being, uh, you know, being able to speak good English, which makes it more, you know, makes the tournament less, um, more, you know, you can kind of can imagine going there. You know, like, you know, for me, going to a country where they don't speak English um, would be quite, or maybe they're not known for speaking English would be quite difficult. Um, so, uh, but yeah, it was that was good. It sounds good. Um, so going on to thinking about Nova. Um, you know, me and Matt, we kind of just went kind of last minute, like literally a month before we said, like, let's just go. We'll just go to Nova. Um, how did you come around to think about going to Nova? Like, what kind of made you want to go? So, uh, when I started playing one year ago, uh, September uh, one year ago, um, I had actually decided to, to, I wanted a big tournament once I've played one year. Uh, I, I had... Uh, a small hope of going to the uh, EDC as part of the Danish team. And as I didn't get uh, picked for that, I set my sights, actually Oliver and me, we talked about going to Nova back in February and we actually decided on, on doing that. Uh, and then from that point on, we started preparing it because it was the biggest tournament we could find and had a very good uh, reputation around the world. And it was, uh, yeah, it seemed like a blast. Uh, so when I started playing, I watched a lot of videos uh, on the streams uh, from, from last year's matches and uh, I mute some of them multiple times to see how they played and it seemed like a blast. It was very fun and therefore I I wanted to, uh, it was one of the tournaments that really uh, yeah, drew my attention. So that was the reason oh. I decided to go there. Yeah, it sounds similar to what, like how I was thinking about it. I mean, we were a bit more unorganised, a bit more last minute. There. But yeah, I mean, it's, obviously it's Nova. Everyone has heard of Nova, and it was um, it's got like a reputation, hasn't it, of being you know lots of good players there, lots of good terrain, and the whole kind of grandeur of it being a. I mean, I guess you know Adepticon is probably regarded as a bigger tournament, but yeah. um, in terms of competitiveness, it was it's highly regarded, and yeah. um, so. How did you get on? Like, did you, did you do well? I mean, obviously, we know that you did well, but uh, yeah, how did you find your games and like the the opponents in particular? Yeah, I think uh, it was a very fantastic tournament. Uh, the first uh, day on the first day was the invitational tournament. Was uh, four games. Yeah, that was a that was a real slog. I mean, I, I, yeah. I did two games myself, and then I had to drop out. <laughs> I was too tired. <laughs> yeah, I was really, really, uh, really, really jet lagged. Uh, I arrived on the Wednesday, um, but um, I think it was very, very fun, and also it was very, very tough competition. All the games was very, very tough. Uh, so I ended out uh, I won against my first opponent, uh, named Frank Smith, who played uh, demons, and then I played. Uh, uh, yeah, some guy I don't remember, uh, Matt Schumann. Uh, oh, yeah. He's called uh, with his. Uh, he's played Eldar. Eldar Jets, yeah, yeah. With three race nights, was all one. And then I played against uh, Jack Harbour uh, with Zenstar, uh, which I lost. Uh, and then uh, he went into the finals. So I lost in the semi finals uh, to, to Jack. And it was, uh, it was not a terrible close game, but it was a somewhat close game where I. Um, 
he denied my invisibility uh, on turn one, and then my my beast pack was stuck quite in the middle of the table, uh, and uh, the, he then uh, charged it with his uh, centurion star. I mean, I actually, he was very lucky of killing my baron. Where I failed that, no answer, and then he, he I failed my save. Um, so he was dead, and then I was stuck there for the remaining three months, and the beast pack was dead. <laughs> yeah, not good. <laughs> but if the Baron was down, that was it, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So <laughs> it, it went quite fast, uh, and then yeah, that, that was that, that was that game. Um, but then the, the next day um, it was total uh, change of scene. Uh, got into the open tournament and had three games where I was very lucky at getting three opponents who. Um, whose armies was very well uh, suited to mine. Uh, one of my opponents, I don't remember his name, has played Necrons, ended up playing, placing quite high, I think quite high in the second bracket uh, afterwards. Uh, but there was a, a Deathwing player, uh, which was a really, really beautiful army, and a nice uh, player to play against. And then uh, this Necron guy who ended quite high uh, in one of the brackets, and then uh, uh, an Imperial Guard player, uh, also met so and each, all of the three armies was very very well suited uh, towards mine so it was some good matchups uh, and uh, was not too much uh, too much uh, uh, risk there yeah and then I um, on the day three uh, day two of the open I met uh, G.D. Myers from Storming Ground with his uh, Tau army oh, yeah. and Fire Catrat um, and was an dawn of war deployment, so he had uh, was not a he had, didn't have so he didn't really have a lot of room to to maneuver out of me, so I really just uh, crossed him, and he couldn't really uh, escape me. So so he did did what what beast pack does best, just yes. one across the table. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, everything, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I suppose brace knights and beast packing couldn't really stop that. Uh, and then game five was a, one of the best games at the tournament was against Werner Born. Uh, we played the Necrons, um, and we played the game, uh, the mission where we had to capture table quarters. Uh, in the one of the most in, table. Was this in the top 16 now, wasn't it? This is like, was this the knockouts? Yeah, it's so the first game in, uh, in bracket one. Uh, and I was actually going into bracket one as... Uh, uh, seat one uh, because I have won my first four games uh, with the max points. Oh yeah. Uh, so and he were, he, were, he had just made it into bracket uh, one uh, as a seat sixteen. And it was actually uh, it's very very tough. Uh, both it's, it's a good match. It's not a good match for me. And also uh, his army had I think had four flyers in it and so on, which I obviously don't like. Um, and very mobile um, and lots of uh, scarab spawning. So uh, in the mission where you contest table quarters that gets quite tricky but uh, luckily he um, uh, actually won the role to go first uh, and actually decided he should go first and that was a very important key role because uh, the deployment was hammer and anvil and had two race knights uh, and I kept my race knights near the uh, middle of the board so could more or less uh, put them in any quarter I wanted in the yeah. game terms and that was like one of my, my tactic all the way and then I just focused on getting first plot and when I had that and it was just a matter of positioning the race knights accordingly in the end of the game but it got very hairy because uh, Initially, I tried to kill his uh, two units of spiders spawning scarabs, but I failed to kill them. Uh, and then the flyers came in, I had to deal with those as well. 
Um, and that meant that uh, he got, I think, 30 or 40 scarves. <laughs> and oh, then God. So <laughs> I had to, had to, through, uh, to turn four. Uh, I charged from the beast pack for the first first uh, game turn into the scarab spawns. And there was a big combat with scarabs and beast pack and bars lords and so on. Where Baron Ultimate killed with Werner using a Tesseract Labyrinth or something. Oh, nasty, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was really, really. <laughs> so it, was a, it was a fantastic game, but uh, in the end, I won by my strategy because uh, he, he had to turn five, he had to do, uh, he had to position where he wanted to be, uh, and I had to, I could counter his positioning and actually also destroy the Bar Slot in the process uh, and, uh, and could easily win the table quarter war. Uh, yeah, going second was very powerful in those, uh, yeah. in those, in those missions. Yeah. And then in game six, I played you. <laughs> yeah, it was good. It was, uh, when I first drew you, I was, I was not quite really confident, but I thought you haven't got a vast amount of, um, like you haven't got like full serpent spam. And so I was like, well, you know, you haven't got, like, I did want to play, um, I was more worried about playing like Tony's army with like loads of serpents because um, I thought you know that's going that's what's going to you know do me in. Um, you had that kind of beast pack, and I knew that you know because as I'm fly, playing Flymon Screechers, um, I had a chance. But of course, uh, Wraith Knights are still good as well. Yeah, but it was a really good game, uh, and you have uh, told about it in a previous episode, so I won't talk so much about it. Yeah. I, I maybe you could say that in the beginning, I thought really I was I was done for uh, when you flew over me and beamed in, in the rear. Uh, <laughs> I, just, yeah. I, thought, I thought I was uh, okay. This is not looking good. But then uh, I decided to just uh, stick in there and uh, really, really uh, keep fighting. And again, I think what. Uh, Got me in the game was actually also that uh, you decided to go first at that point and I had I positioned myself on, on on objectives. So by turn five, I actually would win uh, a decent margin. And turn six, it was a bit smaller. And turn seven, it was a small margin, but still a win. Uh, so that yeah, going second was important. Yeah. I think also like what really impressed me is you didn't get your head. Like a lot of players, I think I got overconfident that game. Um, I think I got a little bit. Like when I landed my princes, um, I, oh, I mean, I had a decent shot at killing some serpents, but I got a little bit overconfident, and um, it really impressed me. Like you didn't, you didn't kind of give in. A lot of players were just given because you had a lot of things go wrong for you. You weren't rolling, you know, great, and you hadn't done anything really until turn three, yeah. and yet you still were like, oh, I'm going to keep playing. I know I can. I've got last turn, so I know I can, like, you know, do the elder trickery of. Yeah. Uh, grabbing objectives yeah. and, I, and uh, yeah it was only I mean till turn 7 I was like you know I was very lucky it went to turn 7 if it was turn 5 uh, it would have been a, a really big win for you actually I think you had pretty much all the objectives wrapped up because you, yeah. you stretched my army out I couldn't I've only got a few a few uh, models so yeah you had all the objectives covered so. but that was also a fantastic game so that was two uh, very very good games in, in, in one day so it was like uh, three games of also GT Myers but that was a totally different league than this so this was much harder <laughs> much much yeah. harder it was fantastic and then uh, uh, the, fi- um, the final day I met uh, Zach with his Wage Serpent Spam uh, oh yeah the, so the 15 year old yeah. and he played really really well really well I was very impressed by him and I still is uh, by his skill and tactics and so on and actually this game I was overconfident uh, because I had really good psychic powers and just thought I would do a long rush on him and then 
try and catch the serpents and destroy them. And that could also work quite well. I, I destroyed many of them, but um, but it also ended up being I'm being stressed out and was not very effective. Um, and he actually uh, was also with this capturing table quarters. So he and he had the last turn at this point. Uh, my plan was to not table him, but to limit him so much. Yeah, I and actually, uh, if the game had ended on turn five, he would have won. So uh, because I had my strategy was to, was too too uh, too let's call it arrogant. I should have focused a bit more to be on a safe side. Uh, yeah. Uh, and then turn six and seven and so on. Uh, I, I had the game. And the game ended on turn six. So. So you made it all the way to the the last round and you were undefeated yeah. at that point. So yeah. who, you played. Um, who did you play in the last one? I played uh, played Tony Kubek with his oh, Wave yeah. Servant Spam. Uh, so this is actually the third time I met uh, Wave Servant Spam. And uh, again, uh, I was actually I was not uh, like I knew he was a good player, so I was not overconfident. But I was confident because Beach Packers thing is good against uh, Servant Spam. Yeah. But um, it uh, and I had also been. Somewhat lucky to an tournament rolling visibility all of my games. Uh, <laughs> of course, I had to have one game with no visibility, had to be in the final. Wow, so it's I always did, difficult, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so I didn't get a visibility. And, uh, I, um, but I started the game and I rushed him um, uh, using cover as much, uh, putting nearly all beasts in cover and getting a starting uh, for two plus. Uh, and then, uh, but he had, of course, a lot of servants, shots, and uh, Barrage and <laughs> all sorts of nonsense. They yeah. killed uh, a lot of bees turn one and killed some serpents, one serpent turn two. Uh, and then um, he killed remaining pack, part of my beast pack at turn two, uh, except for some seers and uh, farseer. Uh, then it was the game changed totally, uh, and I was actually fighting very hard. But actually, uh, I got a lot of the. Uh, I got a lot of the ground uh, gained back, slowly killing his servants different ways and killing his knights with a lucky shriek and so on. Um, and I nearly was uh, getting to a point where this looked doable. Um, once in my race, I failed, uh, I think it was a five-inch charge or something like that. It was quite crucial uh, because there was a limit of one more servant and then I think actually I would have had it. Uh, yeah. Because when the game ended... Uh, we both was force of victim. We both had two objective seats. We had, I had line breaker. Uh, I think he had. Don't remember who had first part. Maybe he had. Uh, Elsa didn't pick it. I don't remember anymore. It's on the block. Uh, but um, uh, but actually ended. If it was totally clean. It ended. Would have ended at draw. Uh, and then oh. he would won on on victory points. Yeah, but he had didn't had he hadn't taken line breaker, so we actually uh, suggested he would just get line breaker and get a, a clean win. But he would have won anyway. So uh, yeah, so it was because uh, he killed uh, the whole beast packs a lot of points. Yeah, that game's on. It's on. Is it on Twitch or what? One of the one of the websites right one of the because I think that whole game was on the stream wasn't it so it was on stream but I think a lot of the streams are, have been caught up or oh, okay. only the, where we packing where we have removing our models oh okay yeah. <laughs> oh well uh, uh, but it was it was on it was on camera wasn't it and yeah, so yeah also the game was against Sec and the games uh, the invitation game against Matt Schumann was also on stream okay. 
så jeg har fået many many good games all of the all of my how many is it 12 opponents has was excellent very fun to play against and there's a new and Werner Braun was fantastic games I remember for a long time so tremendous opponents and very very fun and it's actually quite rarely we had so many good games uh, in the world so it was, uh, I think it was a fantastic experience uh, yeah um, would you um, would you consider going back or would you pick somewhere else or what, what's your idea yeah I would definitely want to go back but uh, I think for next year it will be the HC uh, which is a bit uh, yeah which it's is very bit, close isn't it it's like very a close yeah and it will have to be that uh, Uh, I don't think you can go to do tournaments, uh, but also if I could, I would, would definitely go back because it was a fantastic experience. It was really, really nice. Also, he was very friendly and uh, talkative, and it was uh, it was uh, very enjoyable. And the hotel is is not is not expensive by any means. No, the hotel was amazing, wasn't it? It was yeah. it was just a very high quality hotel. Yeah. I mean, don't have many hotels like that in the UK. Yeah. No. Impressive. That was very, very, very good experience. Uh, so that was definitely. Yeah. But also, well, also thinking about going to Caledonian Open. As you can see, they have open up more spots. Uh, oh yeah, oh, the, that would be uh, that would be good if, if you get along. Yeah. Um, I know it's it's not obviously in the same league as Nova, but it's it's probably the biggest tournament in the UK now. Um, yeah. Probably the biggest yeah, in Europe even. Yeah, it's. It, obviously, it's not. It, it's only five games, so you're going to have problems with the size. Um, but you know, it'll still be a great um, tournament. There'll still be every, pretty much everybody that who plays 40k in the UK will be there. So um, yeah, if you could get a lot, if you could get there, that would be that be really good. Yeah. So at least I'm looking at that. Yeah. Well, there's also there's some few big tournaments in Denmark, but not not, not that many. Uh, we just had the DC DC qualifier, which has 50 players in, in 10 teams, five players each. So that's quite large by Danish standards. And then there's uh, yes, various tournaments, but it's rarely above 50 players. 50 players are probably the max in Denmark. Yeah, it sounds similar to, to ours. Really, don't we? we don't don't have many tournaments above above 50. Um, a couple a couple of big ones, but not not really about that. But uh, yeah, so kind of that's a good good leading point. So what what is the um, obviously you know you're from Denmark? So what is the Danish um, tournament scene like? Like what's the meta like? Uh, do, you know, is it the same people win all the events. Um, and you just said you just talked about the um, team tournament um, that you just went to. So give us a bit more detail about that as well. Yeah. So the, the format is quite static. It's uh, 1850, uh, two source, um, no formations, normally, uh, no data slates as well. So it's kind of like I guess it's is it like from the ETC? Is that where they're getting the, yeah, that? Yeah, it's very from? it's very close to the ETC. We okay. also very often use the ETC fact as an official fact for for tournaments. Yeah, that makes sense. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then it's starting to open up a bit with formations and. Uh, Uh, data states and so on Imperial Knights is also being allowed more and more um, so I think by next year we will see a lot, a lot of more of this uh, allowed in um, yeah but then uh, yeah, there's usually let's say five to ten people or five to six people that win the tournaments um, that's much better than was when I played in the previous past because uh, there was only a few players who won the tournaments uh, and I was a bit more spread out uh, But the top places are normally the same, just rotated around. Uh, but 
usually the same player to win it. So that's yeah, that's quite a, that's actually quite a strong compared to the size of the country. It's quite a quite a uh, yeah, yeah. That's quite a high uh, caliber. Uh, so I think that's, that's very good. Yeah, I played against um, it's Andy Horvath. I think yeah, long yeah, time yeah ago. he's really really good. Yeah, I played him like you see a long time ago. Yeah. Um, so he, I guess he was maybe he's one of the because he's, he's he was the captain when I played against him, and yeah. I guess he's one of those players that's coming kind of up there winning or just about winning every event. Or... Yeah, exactly. He wins a lot of events, mm. uh, and he was actually also on the winning team, a uh, captain from the winning uh, team for the the Danish EDC qualifier. Okay. Team one. On, on his team there was three other. Uh, Players from the EDC, Danish EDC squad, and then uh, one player from the Swedish EDC squad uh, uh, have loaned uh, to fill out the team to five players. Yeah. And that, that team won uh, the tournament, but it was very close. It was only by a small margin, three points to to the second team, was also consisting of uh, uh, ex EDC players, five Danish ex EDC players. And my team came third, a bit further behind, but not, not that many points. Uh, and had um, the two Bremers from all of them, Danish EZ team, and then me and, and two other guys uh, who had actually one played Fantasy EZ team uh, when the Danish won, and another who had been on the Danish EZ team from, from, from some year, years ago. Uh, so, uh, and then there was the fourth team with also ex EZ players. So, it was a quite, uh, four quite strong teams playing. Wow, it sounds like, yeah, tough, yeah, tough yeah. competition. Yeah. Um, so that kind of reflected in the fact that the points were quite close. Uh, yeah, yeah. Expect that, wouldn't you? Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, so uh, I think the most uh, biggest surprise was that uh, my team we didn't, uh, yeah, not that we didn't win because it is not it was far from it. Also, it was quite close. Uh, the, the power level teams were quite, quite close. People couldn't really met. But uh, I think. Uh, the team that came second it was actually very positive that came so high I, hadn't, I didn't that uh, to fall down um, uh, but else it was, uh, it was a very very good match so five games uh, five, five rounds away twist draw format and each round you can get up to 75 points uh, maximum so and you get yeah. if you win yeah, your match you get uh, you win so by the, yeah sorry so yeah. I was going to say it's quite sounds quite similar to the ETC then like quite like yeah, a yeah yeah so that, I guess that's that's good practice for you guys and uh, it's a good format to use isn't it you know, you're uh, you're used to that and um, it gives you a chance to practice pairings or whatever that's yeah good. yeah it was so, definitely good yeah did you notice any like um, from that tournament obviously it sounds like it's a big tournament uh, you know a lot of the best players there in Denmark was there any like because um, what what army were you using and was there any like Clear meta from that, from like the domination of meta from that. Event. So uh, I used my beast pack and <laughs> I had just uh, tweaked it a bit. So I had uh, five spirits here and Eldred to get an even increased chance to get invisibility. Yeah, you got the full yeah. psychic death star kind of yeah. maximum. Or apart from you haven't got some warlocks, but I guess you've got pretty much you've got all the you can get all the good powers yeah. from six items. Yeah. Uh, but even despite that, I actually failed getting visibility off Fortune in the first two games. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and the first game was one against one of the big, very good teams. So that was, 
Uh, I still managed to draw it against Centurion Star, but uh, I'll probably have won it quite quite big if I had got him. Oh, it's nothing. Yeah, Centurions can't do anything if you've got if you've got you've got invisibility. It's just yeah. spats off it. So, but uh, yeah, yeah. So I played that, uh, and actually, <laughs> obviously, a lot of players had have watched my Nova experience, and so there was uh, five copies of my uh, Nova beast pack, <laughs> <laughs> or five well, five variations of it. It was not exact copies, but they were very close to it. <laughs> yeah, that's all, that's always going to happen, isn't it? You know, if you, any successful list is always going to be. Uh, it's always going to be, you know, used and, and looked at and, and tweaked. I mean, there's like I'm sure Bass Jones, uh, you know, champion of the universe, he would yeah. have, he would have, his list would have been copied um, if it hadn't been, you know, the fact that these pack is, you know, is not allowed anymore. I'm yeah. sure we would have seen it dominating yeah. events. Yeah. And like similar list to yours, yeah. I'm sure we would have seen your list uh, being events in the UK all the way for, probably for the next year if it hadn't changed. So yeah. uh, it's obviously a good strong list, and people will 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 copy it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and then there was uh, had, we had actually missing between a lot of Centurion stars because I think that's one of the very best lists at the moment is uh, at least also in the matchup wise I had so few bad matchups and very good very good, many good matchups I had so had a anticipation of seeing many of those but I was actually only uh, my team and and. Uh, and three other teams coming with that, uh, and we actually had, we had built a, one of our list was a, was a hard count with that and so, uh, so we actually lost some ground there because uh, we had bargained that we would see more of those. Uh, a few demons, not so many as expected, and then um, obviously a lot of Tau. Tau has always been strong in Denmark. I mean, Tau players, uh, every team had a Tau player nearly. Uh, yeah, that's that's that, that strikes me as like a little bit unusual because I think Tau at the moment are not. Regarded, at least in the UK, they're not regarded as a powerhouse. You know, they're they're a good, solid army, but I wouldn't say they're you know um, dominating events. What what sort of talents would be them? Um, I think that there was two variants. There was the Shuri Tau, which three good teams had, and there was uh, a far side bomb in one of the other good teams. That Shuri Tau was by far the best, in my opinion. Um, so they, they, were, they were there uh, with, for instance, uh, three or six broadsides or loads of fireballs or loads of crude or something really to put out a lot of shots, but uh, uh, primarily uh, six broadsides. Uh, so to put out a lot of shots, uh, actually could, could kill a beast pack coming in. Yeah, uh, that's, that's what I'm thinking. If you, people are thinking you're going to play beast pack, it's quite a good, quite a good army to play against uh, if yeah. you've got lots of broadsides. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, but I, I also played Tau uh, I played against this Andy Horvath you mentioned uh, uh, and I won against him uh, but it was only because I got the good powers and also I had I increased my beast pack to the maximum size uh, prior to going into the tournament uh, because I wanted to be able to, to go through uh, both Imperial Guard and, and Tau in this kind of setup and also I practiced against it to just be sure um, so that was all quite dominant and did they did quite well. They actually made a lot of point armies. Uh, there was otherwise uh, we have talked about uh, was a single very servant spam army that also did quite good. And there was also uh, a very bit big surprise because very servants are I think they're very very good, but they're also very very vulnerable for instance to beast pack and to to town to centur and stuff. That's a lot of hard yeah. powers. Uh, demons can also okay, not only always, but it has a good chance of destroying them. 
Øh, han er jo også øh, som øh, Wolf Stars og Wolf Rush. Yeah. Oh yeah, so we, we talked about this before, hadn't you? Because yeah, um, yeah. I was saying that it was quite a, I, I guess you know, looking back at the last ETC, Denmark had taken um, a massive wolf star, which yeah. was we were we were kind of looking at um, as Welsh point of view. It was quite an interesting list, and we were interested to see how it would get on. Yeah. And so um, you said, you know, this there seems to be a, a rise in the in the wolf star. So could you, like, could you just give us like a reef, like what what kind of was in that list and um, how did it do? So I think there was two variants of it. Uh, there was three, three players running it. Uh, two of them was more or less the same with three wolf lords uh, on Thunderbolts uh, with two iron priests and some uh, Phimerician wolves. Uh, and then uh, Raven Ring allies for hit and run. Um, and the medic uh, and uh, either a chair plane or a baron uh, uh, depending on what you want mm, so uh, a, a basically a, one, a really big death star there then so yeah, very, uh, very hard yeah. and uh, just just for Mike Collins sake was it strength 10 or strength 9 strength was, 10 <laughs> oh, see <laughs> we're, we're, we're still behind in that regard we're still still stuck in strength 9 land yeah. which, um, I'm not too worried about but I guess Michael be uh, he'll he'll find that interesting that you know another yeah. another country is uh, ruling strength ten. Yeah, but I think yeah, I, th- I didn't think that it did did, did very well. Um, it did okay, but not 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 amazingly. Uh, so it strikes me as quite a one-dimensional army, like yeah. quite a. Yeah. It's got obviously it's good combat, but I, I couldn't see how you support that unit very easily. I mean, you can throw more Thunderbolts in, but I don't see um, like what more combat does for army. Because yeah. there are some armies that just they don't care how much... You can make the biggest Death Star, but some armies can still either kill it or they can MS you around it and dance around it. And yeah. Like a Beast Pack, you've got lots of Thunderbolts, lots of Warlords and all that kind of thing, but the Beast Pack with Invisibility, it can still... They can still deal with that. Yeah. It's not. It's and they're very vulnerable to psychic powers, aren't they? So. Yeah, exactly. So what I did, uh, actually, B one and been also quite not, not very big, but beat him significantly. Uh, and actually, just use some beast pack as a screen for the remaining of my army, uh, and then I held uh, him down and took the objectives one one on man's room. Uh, yeah. So it was just yeah, but yeah, just I mean, keep, keep just just screened it so it couldn't do any harm. Uh, yeah, because as I said, that doesn't strike me as an army which can deal with like the serpents and the knights. I mean, it can it can deal with the like the beast star, but like it has nothing else to to like get rid of the, the serpents. And so, like you said, you, it's a good idea. You screen it off, and I guess you're just flying around and yeah, kind of uh, can grind them down. Um, so. To kind of um, moving on from that. So one thing, you know, while the talk was going on, I was looking at um, there's a website that you know, Danish, um, or I think it's used for another country as well called Tawny Keeper. So like, yeah. and so I was like looking at that, like you know, there's lots of good information there about all the different site uh, uh, tournaments going on. So what? Can you just give us like a really brief like what what is Tawny Keeper and uh, like how, how do you how do you guys use it? So Tony Keeper is a piece of software written by a guy called Michael Bremer, who is also on the Danish ETC team, was part of also my ETC qualifier team, uh, one of my good friends. Uh, he's made that a couple of years ago uh, to uh, uh, keep track of pairings for tournaments. Um, so it's been used for the last, I don't know how many years, two, three, five years ago. Uh, and he's just by himself developed it and just added to it gradually by different kind of scores and points and different things. And has slowly spread from just tournaments for tournaments he was doing in 40k or participating into Fancy Battle, Flames of War, and even been used in Spain for Fancy Battle and 
Sweden as well. So it's um, yeah, just a small piece of software. I think he will gladly give it to anybody who, who wants it, or maybe he won't anymore. But uh, <laughs> uh, he, 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 he at least used to be quite liberal with it. So uh, yeah, I mean, we'll go, we'll go. I'm sure we'll get um, we'll get the more we're talking about about that a bit more because it seems to me like a very polished bit of software and like a, a really. You know, there's a lot of information there that you can see pairings and stats and armies. And I mean, that would, that struck me as if we had that, for example, at Calais. And um, I mean, yeah, you, it's of a different ball game doing 180 players, but you know, the amount of interesting data for someone you know, nerdy and likes the um, likes looking at data and stats and all that. It's it's very interesting to see, you know, how well people got on, and you can see them against other armies. Like how did they do against? How did Centurions do against the rest of the field? And uh, you know, I, I I would like to see that um, used more in the UK. Yeah. You know, um, rather than you know, I I mean, we're a bit behind in that, in that sort of. Um, that sort of department. So hopefully, um, something like that could could come along. Of yeah. course, we've got things like Torrent of Fire, which we had at Nova, yeah, uh, yeah. because it's a similar similar idea to that. Because um, I guess was this was Tourniquet, Was it like updated live? Could you see like what was going yeah, on? Yeah, it's live. You can see it from the mobile phone. Oh, that's good. Yeah, follow it live. And there's also so it's very similar to to Torrent of Fire. There's not a big difference, but it has uh, one of the, one of the features is they can add in army lists. So and it has been done yes. quite because you can actually see the arms played for the team tournament all then there and you can you also register yourself to the event using the it's actually it's, it's quite good uh, especially considering it's one person who has developed and it's also it's very evident it has been developed um, through a lot of experience uh, participating in tournaments uh, over time. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll find out more about that, but yeah, it's, is it tawnykiefer.net? I think it is. If anyone's yes. interested, yes, they can. Uh, you can even see the Danish rankings in there. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> for some of the Danish tournaments. So, so just, if you're interested in seeing that, yeah. Yeah. So. So I guess um, kind of like wrapping up now. So like what? Obviously, Beast Pack now is um, well, it's not gone, I guess, but the Baron is unfortunately no, no longer with us, and um, the Beast Pack has just changed in its. You know, in its role in Dark Elder Army, I guess, no longer the big Death Star. So what um, does the future hold for you? Obviously, you've got the ETC, you've potentially got Cali. Do you have any other big tournaments coming up? And, and what are your thoughts going into these uh, into these tournaments now? Yeah, so my thought is I'm going to experiment a lot with Elder. Uh, so when I um, started playing Elder again and Dark Elder again, I... Uh, I set up a lot of hypotheses uh, to test out, uh, and it got me some of the way. Actually, I found some good combos, but there are also some combos I haven't explored yet, and some, some things I still want to look at, uh, especially with giving the new Dark Elder Codex, because I think there are actually a lot of options in there. There's a lot of options to go for a solid route, if you want to do that still. There's also you know, the opposite choice to go for a shooty route with a lot of, um, yeah. Uh, pinpoint shooting attacks with the webway portal and uh, so for the next couple of months will be experimentation for me trying out the different kind of lists and concepts to persist on which works against different kind of setups and matchups but with the EDC in mind with it for that long goal inside yeah. so that sounds um, good I mean I think it's it's quite an interesting combination I mean, Dark Elder they've been uh, quite um, written off almost like um, at the moment but I'm not so sure I think they've got some good good units in there and uh, I played a game recently last weekend against Dark Elder Army and 
I was using a, a pretty um, silly Ford Ford Army, um, and it was with some Space Wings, and it was it was scary. I mean, I had lots of uh, Sikarans, and I had a Super Heavy, and yeah, Dark Elder don't don't care about Super yeah. Heavies or, or <laughs> Armor Thirteen. They just uh, yeah. had scourges with lances and haywire all over the place. It was, yeah. it was difficult. I mean, I, I was lucky I had a powerful generator to keep those tanks alive, and I just about hang on. Yeah. Um, but gosh, yeah, they, they don't mind about high AD vehicles. And so, of course, if knights are going to be um, dominating, at least here they are. I don't know, maybe yeah. in Denmark they'll they will, start. They will be in Denmark as well. Yeah, it's very, you know, a lot of armies can't deal with knights. Yeah. But Dark Elder don't really mind knights, and they're so fast they can get around those um, arcs and they can deal with, you know, command barges, they can deal with. Um, your serpents reasonably easily. Of course, serpents a lot of damage back, but they can. You can you know deal with them. Mm. Like you said, you've got the webway portal. Um, if that's needed, if it's not, but it, it gives you options, doesn't it? And uh, so yeah, it'll be interesting. And of course, they've still got other good units that people haven't explored. So yeah, uh, that'll be interesting. There's a lot of combos with the webway portal. I think it'll be <laughs> yeah eye opener. So. I think uh, I think we're just I'm just waiting to see somebody who's got the ten wraith guard coming out. Yeah. I don't, don't know if it'd be that good, but it's it's still it would be quite funny to see ten wraith guard just popping right out behind like an ethereal or something, just saying, like saying hello or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I guess it's just got to, dirty, so, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. It's got to just don't want to play like three riptides with a interceptor or something that would maybe not be so good. No, <laughs> <laughs> I guess you have to try and take them out first. Yeah. Um, so you, you mentioned the blog. Do you, just to finish off, do you have a do you have a blog that you could uh, yeah. tell us about? So we have a blog called Donner's Corner dot. Uh, Net, uh, blogspot on it. I'll put that in the show notes. So yeah, yeah. I think I can, I can make it too. Um, and um, yeah, WordPress something, I don't remember. But I, I, I made it. Uh, we have written a lot about the Nova experience, also the Kid experience, and yeah, mostly about that. I will put, eventually probably put something up, up around the, the Danish EC qualifier, but. It's not so worthwhile to share thoughts about the beast pack anymore because, of course, it's dead. So, <laughs> uh, so it's a bit of a waste of time. But, uh, but it is there, and uh, yeah, it's really uh, dedicated to uh, competitive gaming, and I will uh, use it uh, regularly to, to post about my tournament experiences. That sounds good. I'm very interesting seeing some of that. Um, yeah. So I'll put that in the show notes, and you guys can check that out. And um, if you want to read about more information about, obviously, I mean, the beast, like you said, beast is dead, but there's still good. There's lots of strategies um, used with that army that can transfer over to other armies. So and there are variants that can still function. And so it's, it's not it's not dead dead. But, uh, no, it's not completely dead. You've just no. got to you've just got to not expect it to run over someone's whole army. You've got to kind of uh, <laughs> use it, use it for half. <laughs> Yeah, he has a scalpel rather than like a massive hammer that just kills everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, thank you very much for your time. Um, it's been really interesting and really informative. Um, and hopefully we can get you on maybe near the time, near ETC, or, or maybe if you go to Cali, we can chat at Cali or, or some, some other time because I'm sure a lot of people will be interested to see how you're uh, getting on. That would be fantastic. And thank you for having me. You're very welcome. So uh, we'll we'll wrap this up now. And so again, thank you very much, uh, Thomas, and we'll, we'll speak soon. Yeah, thank you as well. Hi all, joined here by Nick Namavati from Team America. Hi Nick. Hi Matt, how you doing? I'm good, thanks. Yourself? I'm good. So you're here to do a little interview for us guys and talk a little bit about yourself. Ooh. All right. Cool. So a lot of people have probably heard of you, unfortunately. 
either mm-hmm. for good or bad things. Majority good, I think. Hopefully good. Yeah. I don't like good. I think the bad is more for those who know you. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> yeah. So why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself, uh, how you got started in 40k and what kind of game gaming store you're local yeah, to? Sure. A little bit of background. Yeah, so uh, I'm Nick. I'm 20. I live in America, New Jersey. Uh, I have been playing 40K for about 10 years. I started in the fifth grade when my fifth grade teacher got me into it when he started a little club for the game because he played prior to this. Um, I played a bunch of different things. I used to play Fantasy, which I don't play as much anymore. I have Tyranids, Grey Knights, Necrons, Demons. That's what happens when you play for 10 years. Um, I started playing competitively when I was like 14 or so. I went to my first GT when I was 14. Um, I started being successful with it when I was like 15 or 16. Uh, and recently, like the past two or three years, I've been winning a lot of big events like Adepticons and uh, Placewell, Nova, stuff like that. So yeah, and now I'm on the ETC team. You say you started off a competitive game when you were 14. What kind of thing got you into that? I'm guessing it wasn't just you off your own back going and finding these events. Yeah, no, um, you know, I had a bunch of friends who played at my local club and stuff, so I played with them for a while, and uh, eventually I started going to a store nearby, the only game in town, and um, they played competitively, so I got into it there, and then eventually you just just pick it up and go. Yeah, so more following the crowd around you a little bit, and then becoming the... Yeah. Cool. So you you mentioned you uh, won Adepticon a couple of times. Uh, how old were you when you first won Adepticon? Uh, I'm gonna guess 18, whatever. It was April 2013. So however old I was then. Uh, so last year you would have been 19. Yeah, just turned 19. Yep. Cool. So quite young to be winning such a big event. Yeah. Uh, prestigious event, really. Yeah. When I was 18. I must, yeah, I was 18, I won, no, 17, I won my first Nova Invitational, which was, I'm sure you know what that is, 32-person Invitational in America, and then just six months prior to winning Adepticon, I got second in the Nova Open, losing to Tony in the finals, and that was good. So I've been successful for a bit, but yeah, that was my first really big one. Ah, cool, so that would have been you and Tony both being 18-ish at the time? Yeah, Tony's like half a year younger than I am, we're about the same age. Yeah, because I remember from ETC this year, me, you and Tony were all within so six months or so, something like that. Mm-hmm. So you're doing doing pretty well to be doing that well at such a young age. Yeah. So what was it like, uh, that success and that feeling of winning at Epticon, still being quite young? Uh, I mean, it's a lot of fun, you know. Uh, I set out as my goal to play in one Adepticon, which is a pretty high goal to set, very unrealistic really, but um, I wanted to qualify for Team America at the time, and that was the only way to do it realistically, so I went for it, and it worked out. It's pretty great. Me and my friends had a giant party at the tournament day after of whatever. Everyone got really drunk. It was a good times. Sounds fun. So I know you uh, won that with the Flymonster's Creature Army you were famous for. The one you copied off John Parsons, was it? Yeah, that's how that's how that was came about. That was actually the first year I won it, I was playing Necrons and Grey Knights back in very early sixth actually. This previous year I won it again with Fly Monsters. Ah uh, yeah, because I remember you played uh, Josh Roberts over there, didn't you? Right. Who's one of the UK guys. Yes. Who... Mm-hmm. Cool. So, 
so Necron's Grenades, that was a bit of an odd combination at the time. I think I remember being a Drago star with yeah, it was, flyer support. Yeah, so it was three Night Scythe Warriors for some fast objective grabbing and shooting, three Annihilation Barges, Drago, and ten Paladins. Pretty straight. Then the year after was Flying Monsters Creatures, which you used for a while. I'm yeah, afraid. about a year I used them. I still dabble with them now, but they're not, as, they're not what they used to be, I don't think. Um, but yeah, Flying Monsters Creatures was my main thing for a while. Yeah, I know Adam Ryland over here has been doing quite well with them, and James mm-hmm. James did at Nova did pretty yeah. well. Is that tempted you to crack them out and see if you've still got it with them? Yeah, I've played some games with them. Um, I do well. Uh, Serpents are probably my toughest match. Serpents in a multiple objective game, which seems to be everywhere because everyone plays Serpents, so that makes it tough to actually play them. Um, what else? Uh, I find that I've been having a lot of success with Tyranids demons as a flying-based army, so like two Flywinds, two Crones, Fate Weaver, Demon Prince. That kind of stuff has been doing really well for me. Um, yeah. So I know you had quite an interesting army at the Battle for Salvation recently as well, which was uh, the old Dark Eldar book. Yeah, well, the old Dark Eldar and Tyranids before the Spore Pods and all those new things that just came out. Uh, yeah, so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was so a, it was a pretty neat list. I've been coming up with it for about six months now. I wanted to run it at ETC, but no one took it seriously. Um, and I knew Dark Elder was going to come out soon, so I figured I should run it before it becomes invalidated. It was based around flying monsters coming out of a Woodway portal. Ah, so abusing the lack of FAQs. Pretty much. <laughs> cool, so is that the army you're carrying on with at the moment? Um, Nids not demons, really. Um, or something new? I want to... I was pretty like, at a loss of what to play post-BFS, because I just have not been inspired by demons recently. Um, but I think the new Tyranid army coming out, the way it has, with the spore pods and everything, I think I'm going to try to dabble with that some. So would you say, then, Nids or Demons would be your favorite army? Yeah, to play Nids or? and Demons are definitely my favorite armies. I just like armies with a lot of speed and deployment options. Um, a lot of tricks. I like tricks. Um, stuff like that. And I just find, like, the majority of army space rings, Tau, very boring, just because they're so one-dimensional in how they play. I would be a, I would enjoy Eldar a lot, I think, if I played Eldar, but I don't. So would you say that's kind of your play style, then, having something you can be a little bit tricky with and be any way you need yeah, it? Yeah, definitely. Something, just something where, like, I'm always in the game, no matter how bad it gets, and it's always, it's always, like... I feel like I'm not playing my opponent rather than just beating their face into the ground with guns or something. Cool. Yeah. Cool. So, which events are you heading to soon and what are you using uh, on that? I think you said Du Bois. Yeah, Du Bois is coming up for me. I'll be using uh, my demons at Du Bois because they have a comp format where you can only run two of a certain thing or whatnot, and demons pretty much arcane in that format, the way it's set up. You can make some other armies really good, but demons just, like, lend themselves to the format. So I'm going to run demons. Um, yeah. Cool. I'm hoping this uh, will be out before that event, because we're hoping uh, yourself and Andrew Gunny are going to do a little bit of coverage for it right. on that. So that'll be interesting mm-hmm. to hear. Right. That's in two weeks. You don't want to get cracking. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think this may just be the weekend before then, or may even be the same episode as your oh, okay. We may possibly stuck with a double whammy of you in the same yeah. show. That'd be very cool. So, 
Uh, a few listener questions then, mm-hmm. which uh, I know a few of these you've read and were a little bit disturbed by. So just a content warning here for any younger listeners. Yeah. Uh, the first one coming in from New York. Sure. Spanish hookers, Serbian hookers, or Welsh sheep? Definitely the Welsh sheep. Um, they're just so soft and cuddly. Now, um, we don't talk about the, the escapades of Europe, so none of that actually happened. So there you go. Ah, okay. I'll make sure to remember that. Uh, so the next question may never have happened either. Uh, how did it feel getting battered by the crazy Serbian guy with toy swords at the ETC? Um, that one did happen. I don't remember because I was definitely in not my usual state of mind. Maybe my usual state of mind depends how well you know me. Um, but it it was it wasn't that bad. I survived. I, I still want to see the video no, repeat of that. Really was, that was hilarious. Having him hit you twice and go. Oh. <laughs> It oh, was no, a three-round fight. In the first yet. round, I put up a decent fight. Like I, I lost, but like it was a fight. The next round and the round after, it was just like him beating me senselessly. So I don't really know what happened, but yeah. Yeah, he looked like he enjoyed it. So same uh, question from Bob Waltzencroft. Uh, on a more serious note, do you think the US is catching up with Europe in terms of meta smashing lists? Um. Yeah, I think I, I think there were if anything ahead of you guys. Um. At least I know that I believe Imperial Knights are all over the place in Europe right now, where they're falling off in America, because they're just... It's mainly my fault at the moment, because they've only just been allowed in a lot of events, and I've been taking them to a few recently, whereas people are just kind of catching on to what they can do, I find. Yeah, Um, they've been been allowed for now six months or so, so everyone's past catching on and trying to figure out ways to deal with it, and they're... I think Imperial Knights are becoming a tier two list, I'd say. Um, there there are things that you guys are definitely ahead of us on, like Forge World, we don't really use much Forge World. Like the West Coast has a zero to one and a ban list and stuff. I, as far as I know, you guys are much more liberal with your Forge World usage. So I think yeah. you guys have us beat out on there. But that's about it, honestly. Cool. So from Tom Adriani. How does geographical disposition factor into the strength of parts in the U.S. scene? Um, that's a good question. It's it's tough because all the best players are, for the most part, scattered across the whole country. So it's tough to get games in. But there's been there's a lot of GTs, so everyone just mutually agrees to travel to them, and that's where you get a lot of practice in. Uh, you also you just talk to all of them. They're all friends for the most part. So if you want to have a theory hammer, or if you're ever traveling for work or school or whatnot, then you can just try to meet up with one of your friends, stuff like that. And second part of his question, how do you think that relates in comparison to most of the European countries in terms of player strength and experience? Um, how does that? Uh, I think Europeans probably have it a bit easier. They can. I feel like all their players that are solid are more near each other, so it's easier for them to get good quality games in more frequently. So I think you definitely have an advantage there. Um. Yeah, it, it, it kind of sucks at times. Just a little one for myself then, because I know from having played at Nova and played over yeah. here a lot, do you find in bigger events you get a couple of quite tough games, but then three or four possibly easier games in the first few rounds because of the pure number of players? Yeah, definitely. In, I know, in America, I'd say. I know over here, 
you, it's in like a standard six round GT, you probably have your first round is very easy. Your second round is like medium to easy. Your third game is fairly hard, and then the rest of the games are hard. So you definitely have a round or two to buffer. Yeah, because I know over here we get uh, it seems to be quite tough with a lot of mm. uh, a lot of events having a lot of the players go to. So there's quite a small. Uh, amount of players in the room say 40 to 50 yeah. but you'll find 20 of them say may have top level or ETC quality mm-hmm. whereas it's a little bit different over over there for you yeah you know, um, at any given tournament unless it's like Adepticon or Nova or Du Bois where a bunch of really good players agree to go you probably only have I don't know uh, three or four really top players yeah, yeah. cool Adam Ryland asks, can I have a Team America shirt without blood on it? Most of them don't have blood on it, so probably I think I could arrange that. Yeah, I think he ended up swapping with you just after you fought the crazy guy with the swords. That could explain that. Yeah, there is definitely blood on that shirt. (laughs) Yeah. So from Cameron Pinheiro, Uh, how was the troll you hooked up with this year at ET? Better or worse than drunkenly raw-dogging at a prostitute last year? Let's just settle this now. There was no drunkenly raw dog in the prostitute. There was there was definitely condoms involved. Um, but the troll was definitely better just because you didn't have to pay for it. So, you know. Oh, did you not pay for it a little bit inside? You know, how I felt the next day is a different kind of pay. <laughs> Fair enough. And we won't go too much into detail on that because I know you've been traumatised yeah. enough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, from Mike Collins. Is it possible to get AIDS twice? Not HIV, but full-blown AIDS. Uh, and according to Justin Cook, that's bear AIDS in your case. I wouldn't know, but um, I would assume not. Usually once you have it, you have it. Okay, and Matt Edmonds. Do you love slapping your own face off his cock? It wouldn't be the worst thing I've done. So yeah, I would say I wouldn't like that. I remember being... You slightly drunk and slightly scarred by that incident at the award ceremony. I slapped my face against the cock. That happened. Yeah, when he came up resting up my shoulder and your face just went, uh, what's that? What? <laughs> I don't even remember that. Yeah, we may have been drunk. I don't do that. I don't drink. Probably not. Yeah, I don't. I think I've rarely seen you. You've seen me at least. Apart once. from when you found out you were playing Germany, then you sobered up instantly. And <laughs> yeah, that happened. Uh, and then the final one on a little bit more of a serious note on a lot of US podcasts I've heard your style being not playing the game, flying the imprints on and off hiding, flying the table and winning the objectives is this a fair and fun one to play? Um, I think it's fun Um, sometimes my opponents may not think it's fun Um, it's definitely fair, I mean it's within the rules and all that but it's really just like a counter to Death Star's like Balanced armies, it's very hard to actually fly off the table against because they have answers for that. But like things like Beast Star, back when that was more popular, or Seer Council, you couldn't fight it. All you could do is die, or be beaten, or run away. So I chose to run away, so I didn't die. And it led to some very boring games. Like They would be on the ground, sitting there, and I'd be off the table or flying around, not getting hurt. But you know, if you're going to play with this broken, unkillable unit, why should I just let you kill me? It seems stupid. 
Yep, it sounds like a very valid point. So just to wrap this up then and let you get going, any final comments you'd like to share with the world? Any words of wisdom? I think I'm all right. No, stay classy. That's, that's my words of wisdom. Stay classy. Stay classy. If you've been listening to our previous shows, you'd have heard Matt Robertson talking about a weekly ongoing league that he's taking part in in Liverpool. Um, and Matt spoke to the guy behind that, Gene Coates, and you can hear that right now. Hi all, Matt Robertson here, joined by Gene Coates of the Liverpool Reapers. Hello. Hi Gene, so we've just got you on just to have a bit of a chat uh, about the Liverpool League, which I've mentioned on a couple of episodes so far, and okay. a little bit of a plug for the Liverpool Reapers as well. Yay. So why don't you just explain what the Liverpool Reapers are for everyone who doesn't know or hasn't heard of them yet. Right, well, uh, the Liverpool Reapers is probably similar to a lot of clubs um, it's really just a gang of guys who used to play regularly at a local kind of cafe called the Scythe and Teacup which is in Liverpool and uh, we all like, kind of became friends playing games regularly and we kind of thought well maybe we should develop a club or something along those lines just you know somewhere to call home because obviously we knew about uh, the guys up the road at the northern warlords and uh, places like that and we thought you know we want a piece of that so we kind of approached the cafe um who have been really cool and said any chance that we could you know set this up as a club there's 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 about five or six of us that decided that we'd kind of do it and um I think we were called Scouse40k or something stupid like that at the time. And uh, he said, yeah, so um, you can start a club, but you're going to have to call it something a bit different. So seeing it as it was called the Scythe and Teacup, um, we decided to call ourselves Liverpool Reapers. And then since then, uh, you know, we've grown from like five or six guys to, you know, we got the Facebook um, group going and uh, set up a YouTube channel and things like that, just putting up a few like you know battle reports and things like that and you know we've got i mean i don't know i think it's like 100 and 708 members on on facebook whether or not any of them are real they could all be your robots and then uh, you know we get quite a few viewings on our youtube stuff as well so you know it's only been going a year and you know growth at the beginning seems really good and you know and there's a lot of nice guys as well so that's basically what we are just a gang of guys that play warhammer warhammer 40k and some traitors have started playing other things as well but we won't mention them by name <laughs> that sounds good so Thanks. uh the liverpool league then which is what we've really got you on to talk about okay. is a kind of a tournament with a different style different setting so why don't you just Explain yeah. what makes it different to uh, everyday okay. events some players may go to. Right. Well, obviously, um, a lot of people seem to think that playing Warhammer's for kids, but you know, most of the guys that play are, you know, older or at least you know guys with responsibilities, jobs, uh, life outside 40k. Um, so you know. The guy who founded the league a few le- uh, a few years ago, uh, Rich, he kind of came up with this. Well, it's kind of it, it makes sense really. Uh, basically, you all meet up anyway every week, you and the guys, and you play a game, and you talk, and you go home. So basically, what he's kind of he came up with um, was a format where you 
have six rounds, like, you know, or five rounds in this case, um, like Swiss parents. So it's basically similar to a lot of formats of tournaments. So you kind of, instead of doing it over two days where you, you know, play five or six games and you kind of tally up your score at the end of the weekend, you get a winner. We do it across five or six weeks where uh, there's like a league table. Everyone's kind of randomly paired. And then obviously using the Swiss system, you kind of get your matchups each week. So everybody's got to play uh, in that seven days between Monday and Sunday, submit their scores. Um, and then, you know, we will hopefully, we usually get it right, get um, your next parent set up for the next week. So then you play every week. And it's, you know, up to the players when and where and how, how like, you know, how quickly in the week they play. We don't care where they play. Um, you know, we just set out the, like, you know, the missions for that week. And then players can go and, you know, get together at their own leisure and, and you know, and play the games just so long as they get back to us with their results. And then hopefully once all the results are in and things like that, and um, we get, like, a top... Well, we have done top eight this time. is probably going to be top four, but we'll see. We have, like, a, a day where they all come in and um, have, like, a knockouts tournament. So uh, some people come and don't stay very long, but once they've had the tournament, there's, like, an overall winner at the end, and they'll get a prize and, you know, obviously bragging rights that they're the best player in Liverpool and things like that. So that's sort of how it works. So you've got a mini-league of five or six games depending on the number of players and then the top yeah. X amount yeah. play qualify yeah. for a knockout final yeah. deciding who yeah. wins yeah basically like it's a it, it it's not the same for the final because obviously there's there's it's um it, it's we we considered last time doing like a tournament um style so like all the players like play another tournament so we had like a winner for the swiss so if you won this like if you won the the the, the, the it, we had six rounds last last time so if you won the six rounds you'd get a prize or like a voucher basically saying like you were the king of the swiss and then you'd be entered into the tournament the finals day tournament which was an eight man which was going to run in a similar fashion but just with you know obviously people pulling out and things like that and it just getting the, the actual people there to do the tournament at the end was just too much of a you know a logistical problem. So we decided that this time round we'd kind of condense it a bit more, um, make sure that we had players like dedicated guys that we do see every week that are really keen to kind of come down and you know play and then just ensure that everyone gets a game every week because although a, a lot of us are into you know coming up your neck of the woods, Matt, and playing, like, you know, some competitive, um, you know, hardcore, win-at-all-costs 40K. There's still another entire side of the community who haven't experienced or don't really want to experience. They just want a guaranteed game every week, if that makes sense. So um, we've had to kind of change the format so that the final is kind of just a separate thing you get your games all the way through and then the final day is a separate thing um with no kind of major commitment and then you just have a knockout so you could probably turn up on that day play your game if you get knocked out just go home and have a roast dinner or whatever you want to do um but it's 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 designed so that the player gets you know the freedom to kind of do what they want yeah trying to suit everyone that really well that's it i mean obviously that in itself is uh, a difficult thing to do like just yeah. to keep everyone happy is 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 a hard task in itself yeah do you find there's quite a mix of 
gamers who are more into playing, just playing for fluff and just roll some dice and the guys who want to be a little bit more competitive down at the Reapers who get involved in the league? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, there's there's uh, Liverpool's obviously a pretty, a pretty big city. So, you know, the Liverpool Reapers is like... Uh, like a, let's let's call them a, a faction, I suppose, and it does bring some kind of fun competitiveness into it. So like you've got the guys from the Liverpool Reapers. Now the Reapers in itself is a very varied and broad group of players. Like we've got guys that like literally have their army lists set up based on something that they've read in a book. You know, like like this is the such and such from this such and such book, and that's how I'm going to play it, and they enjoy that. And then you've got the other guys who are like. You know, I'm going to bring three knights and three riptides, and I'm going to utterly decimate you. Um, not and me that's to fine the as well. Yeah, not this time, <laughs> not this time. But I'm sure that'll, that'll be next time. But no, um, fluff, fluff-driven players, like as I said, like the Reapers is one group. But then we've got the guys from the LWA, who's like a like a war games association. And the guy that I actually run the league with, uh, well, one of the guys that I run the league with, Leo, he um, he's from that association, and they're like, um, they've got their own kind of little premises and stuff like that, and they they do a lot of games. They don't just play like 40k and stuff. They do like you know all your period stuff, so like you know your old like Napoleonics and stuff like that, and they do like a lot of um, role play stuff and things like that. They're like a kind of a games club. But then they have their own kind of presence. Although, to be fair, we're all kind of interlinked. There's Reapers and there's Liverpool War Games Association. And then obviously we've got Yola from down the M62 who likes to come up here and try and bully us. Well, <laughs> succeed in bullying us, but he's come up and, you know, that's that's another gang as well. So, you know, from like your club as well, there's players that like the competitive stuff, but then there's other players who prefer, you know, the fluff stuff. Which is where you know the collisions can, the clashes can sometimes occur. Like I think um, when the two kind of different types of players meet in a kind of competitive environment, that's where it gets difficult. Because yes, it's a league, so yes, there is a prize at the end of it. So yes, it is competitive. But then we sell it as it's designed for gamers to kind of get a game every week, play someone new have some fun and have a, you know, a cheer mic and a game. So some guys come into it just for the guaranteed game every week, but then other guys come into it to utterly decimate everyone else. So sometimes we find that, um, you know, clashes can be had simply because, you know, people aren't into the way that other people play 40k. Yeah, that makes sense. So do you find you're getting quite a lot of guys playing? Because I know the yeah. first time I joined it was, was when I met most of you guys was for, for one of these leagues which I'd been told about and enticed to join. Yeah. And I did get to meet quite a lot of people who some of them now quite good friends with. Yeah. It's the same kind of thing you get with a normal event over a weekend. Yeah. But this is just over five or six weeks. Yeah. Um, to be honest, I was the same. Um, I the, A big factor in the fact that... The, like going back to the Reapers, the, a big reason why the Reapers began was because it was so difficult for um, guys to kind of step into this world outside of the bedroom 40k. So for a guy like me, I went into my local games workshop and um, I was like, yeah, I collect or I, I paint and I meet up with my mates 
and we have a game in the living room and we have a few beers and that's it. And I was like, but, you know, I'm sick of playing Tyranids every week or I'm sick of playing Space Wolves every week. There must be guys out there that own Tile or something like that. So they um, put me onto the league. So then I spoke to Rich, who was running it at the time, and said, you know, what's this all about? And he said, just, you know, basically told me everything that I've just told you. It's dead chilled. You get a new game every week. You'll get to meet someone new. And then that's when I went in and I met um, a few of the guys there who were in the league. Um, and they kind of like, in a way, took me under their wing. And they were like, ah, oh, you've never been involved in the 40K scene. You've never been to Games Workshop and played in there. I was like, no, I've never done any of this. This is all completely new to me. Although I'd been collecting and playing Warhammer for years, I hadn't like dipped my toe in the um you know the, the actual involvement in like going out and actually playing the game which is you know quite hard to do for a lot of players who've never kind of been involved with it so the league is really good for that as well so if you don't know anybody who plays 40k or you're somebody who does play the same two guys every week and you know you you've all got your own interpretations of the rules and you know it's really good to get with new players some of which are really experienced and some of which aren't so experienced and you kind of develop your game and it's really fun as well because it's it's better like you know variety is the spice of life don't you say so it's like you know changing all kinds of stuff playing loads of different games is, is really good and that's my biggest enjoyment in it is actually playing loads of different players and and um, obviously making loads of good friends as well cool so if anyone wanted to find out more about the league or potentially if they're local how they can get involved in future or steal the ideas for their own gaming group where can they find yeah. out any extra info well uh, we've got um, a, a page on Facebook which is Liverpool 40k um, it's been going a while now um, this is our seventh season so um, if you go on there you can go right back to the dawn of our, our um, you know from when it was first run by the one man band uh, Rich, it was like um, he was just doing it because he was really sick of the current state of the local 40k so you can go right back to the start and see how it developed and now it goes through to how it, it's being run now um, you can sign up, you can you can like it um, it isn't just for Liverpool, like if anyone can get to Liverpool to play their games or local that's great as well so if somebody lives on the Wirral or you know Warrington or Southport or anywhere around here um, you know it's down to the players just to arrange their games like you know if, if you're playing someone from your neck of the woods and you've got a table in your in your living room or wherever just do it there you know there's no you don't have to meet a certain place certain time to do it so you know check us out on face, Facebook all the information you need there. There's rules packs and stuff like that. There's, you know, a few little downloads and stuff like that. So if you just want to lift it and take it to your local, you know, gaming group, try it out, that'd be great. Let us know. Let us know what you think. Um, send us an email telling us how awful it is or how great it is and, you know, we'll take it all on board and that'd be brilliant, yeah. Cool. So thank you very much for joining us, giving us a bit more insight <laughs> on that one, Gene. No worries. Thanks for letting me waffle on. No worries. I'll speak to you soon.
so we're now joined here by Gareth Donnelly back from his recent victorious weekend at Battlefield Birmingham 2 so how was it guys? Uh, it was a good weekend as always uh, Battlefield Birmingham is always a really 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 good tournament very chilled out very casual um, but with some bonkers hard lists such as what was there this weekend? Oh, there was the usual filth of uh, Night Titans and Eldar spammy spam. But the, the one unusual thing was there wasn't a single demon model the whole weekend. So not even summoned? Not even a summoned demon. So why don't you just give us a brief overview of some of the armies that kept popping up if they weren't demons and then go into your list a little bit. Um... The majority of the list, if I remember right, were Necrons, which was very unusual for a tournament. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like, really unusual. Normally you'll see a couple, and then to have the majority is a bit rare. Yeah, if that, you know, you might you might see two tops, but I think there was I think there was six or seven altogether is quite a lot. And that was out of how many players? There were, I think it was 24 in the end, because there were quite a few dropouts last minute. So, almost a third, really, of Necrons. Yeah, which is really unusual. Uh, we had a couple of Eldar, um, loads of Space Marines represented, quite a few all different kinds. Um, there was a couple of Grey Knights there, a couple of Guard, a couple of Tau. It was just a good mix, really, but you know, just seeing the Necrons was quite unusual. And seeing, like, uh, no demons was you know just as usual. Yeah, so were you using Necrons yourself? Of course I was. Cool. What was your list then, mate? Right. Um, I've got two Barge Lords with everything on them. So they was coming at 285 points a pop. So they had the kitchen sink. The only thing they didn't have was the phylactery, but had everything else. Um, then the usual three Annihilation Barges. Um, four scythes with five warriors in each and just to try and get round knights and all the mech that was going to turn up um, I had six of the haywire cryptex cool so before we go into your games can you explain a little bit to listeners what made you choose those specific units so why two barge lords with the everything just... uh, well I found that uh, the two barge lords they're really, really handy. Um, one of them on their own, I don't find effective, or I can't use it effectively, one or the other. So I think that having two together um, gives you really good backup, and if one goes down, you've then still got enough with just one on his own, once he gets to the opposite end of the board, to walk through an army. Um, and they're also really good at board control, because um, a lot of people will stay away from them. They're quite scared of them, which is really, really good. Uh, even if they don't actually do anything in the game, they can just stop the opponent from doing stuff to me, which is really good. Um, the Flyers, Tesla, they're awesome. They're dirt cheap at 100 points a flyer. And also, if you come up against Night Titans, then they can't touch you. By Night Titans, you mean Imperial Knights, right? That's the one. They're all the ones cool. that we hate. I thought so. Yes. There's just a mini Titan. It's still a Titan. Shouldn't be in the game. Blah, 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 etc., etc. Um, <laughs> uh, the three 
Annihilation barges are just fantastic at shooting. They're great when they jink because um, of the Tesla, and they're quite possibly one of the cheapest and best anti-fly units in the whole game. So they're pretty much an auto-take. And, and then the Haywire Cryptex, um, again, just the amount of mech that we're seeing now. Uh, we're seeing lots of um, PASC with, with double punishers. We're seeing an awful lot of... Um, Imperial Knights, a lot of Wave Serpents, uh, just quite a lot of mech. It just seems to be building up again, a bit like Fifth Ed, really. And they're really good. And because when they come out of the Knight Scythes, um, you can place them um, wherever you want around one of the Imperial Knights. You can avoid half the shields. So always very handy. So would you say the barges are doing the majority of your work in combat, the law barges, and then the shooting's just support, or is the combat side more support for the shooting, do you reckon? Um, to be honest, the cracking combat night, the um, the law barges, are okay one-on-one. Say if you're against, say, against a vehicle or a dreadnought or just against one sort of thing, but you stick them in a unit of seven, eight space marines, they can be there all game. Because the weapon skill 4 isn't all that great, really. And they've only got 3 attacks. So you're relying on um, the Mind Shackle Scarabs to try and do a lot of the damage. Which is, again, why they're really good one-on-one. If you can get the Mind Shackle Scarabs off on one-on-one, it makes them really good. Um, Apart from that, they're they're just good at board control. Um, It's also been FAQ'd um, that they can hit flyers with their sweep attack. Um, many people disagree with it, but you can. And the sweep attack is really, really good. You can attack one unit, and then you can assault something else completely different. So they're they're very multifunctional what they can attack, uh, and they've also speed as well because it's a fast skimmer. They're great at last minute objective grabbing as well. What? How come you think they've got such good board control? Then, if you say they're not great in combat. Is that just because other people haven't realised that yet, possibly? Uh, it's not that. It's because people are taking they're taking quite elite units. Uh, like you're looking at things like uh, Wraith Knights, um, single characters that they've put like everything into. They've spent a lot of points on quite elite characters, things like Demon Princes as well. Um, you know, if you get a good run against a demon prince, um, you can kill them off quite easily. If you've got something like um, like Adam Ryland's list, where his whole army is based around having the big monstrous creatures, um, it then makes him a bit more hesitant to move them forwards and eventually land and try and take out the barges. Fair point. So that's your list. That's your brief tactics. So. Uh, who and what did you play game one? Right, game one was one of our local guys, Ben Jones. And he has been to, I think he's been to every Battlefield Burma, if I remember correctly. And he took quite an interesting list. It was Clan Raccoon, or Clan Rakan, however you want to say it. And it was a six Dreadnought list. Which was something a bit different and a bit cool. Yeah, not something you see too often. No, and something I looked at and I thought, I should have this one if I don't do something really wrong. 
because it, it's just like a like a Necron's wet dream. Yeah, and it was just a standard book missions, wasn't it? Yep, standard book missions, win, lose, draw. Cool. Dead so, simple. Same as Adam covered in last week's show. Won't go into too much detail on that now. Yeah, and then you just added up your VPs at the end, and the VPs will be there in case of a decider at the end. Okay, so six dreadnoughts against all your strength seven flying and barges. Yeah. How did that one go? Uh, that was a table in. <laughs> it didn't last too long. Um, a lot of his dreadnoughts are like Laz Cannon and, and Shooty Dreadnoughts. So the, I think I lost one model or something ridiculous like that. It, ah, was, so it was quite horrific for him. Not something that needs too much explaining then. No, not really. Pretty straightforward. Cool, so good start. Nice big win. Game two? Yes, nice big win. Uh, game two was the list. Well, I caught up against the list. That uh, When I looked around the... When I looked around the room at the beginning, I thought, well, that list is going to win this weekend. So I looked at it straight away. Uh, and it's played by a guy called Peter Melton. Uh, he's a bit of an up-and-coming player. I think he's a bit of a club player, but then he's starting to go to more tournaments. He's getting more tournament savvy. And he bought an Eldar Serpent Spam with Wraith Knights. So he come up with that, and I thought, I've had it here. Also got the um, the spirits here on the bike, flying around, doing all of his stuff. And I thought, well, he's just going to turn up, nail a load of demons on the table, uh, use his serpents to, to whittle down my vehicles one by one, and, you know, just finish me off. So I thought, well, I've lost this one, so hopefully next game I'll, I'll come up. Um, but the advantage that... I had in this game is that Peter's quite an inexperienced player when it comes to this list. You know, he just started using it. So I just use his inexperience against him, really. Do you think it's a list he's just seen he's doing well online and picked up on, or he's just happened to come by it himself? What do you reckon? Uh, I did ask you about it, actually, and I think he just said he wanted to... He just wanted to try it out. You know, he'd seen it. Um, and I think he liked... I think he liked the look of Eldar anyway. And, you know, Wave Serpents look cool and Wraith Knights look awesome. So, yeah, it looks cool, but also it just so happens to be really, really hard at the same time. But he was still learning with the army. He was le- Every single game afterwards, he was saying how much he was learning with it. And um, But I ended up winning um, because he did things like he'd shoot with the, he'd shoot with the Serpents before the Wraith Knights, like at the Barges, for instance. So, you know, what you'd normally do is you'd use your strength 10 guns first, try and get rid of that shield, and then pepper it to death with the serpents. And just, like, little things like that, uh, which, you, you know, which if he'd have known beforehand, he probably would have done an awful lot better against me. So I ended up getting a win out of that one, um, and a lot of it was based down to... I went second, and then all the flyers came on, all the guys jumped out last minute, took all the objectives, and the game ended... Was that a natural end or a time end? Uh, I think that was. I think that was a turn five job, so it just naturally ended. Ah, cool. So you looked yeah. out on the dice roll on that one. Yes, very much so. Was time much of an issue over the weekend, or? No, not at all. Most games were either, well, between five and seven turns. Oh, so that's a good bonus then. Yeah, it was. It was actually all the games that I saw are really, really quick. I mean, Necrons are quick anyway because you miss out a whole 
magic phase yeah. and all that crap. I suppose so, no one summoning demons helped. Yeah, exactly. Um, cool. So all the games are pretty much done and dusty in time. Did that end up as a win for you, Game 2, then? Yep, that was a win. Uh, again, so it was purely just because of his lack of knowledge of the list. If he'd have had a few more games, that I think he would have easily beat me. Ah, right. Was that a big in the end or just a small one? Uh, that was, I think that was my, I think that was my smallest win. I think that was 18 points. Okay. Yeah. So still a decent score, but yeah, it was, it not was still a max. bloody good score. Yeah. Cool. So game three, you're right up there at the top. Who are you playing yeah. this time? So game three, I've come up against another list, and I thought, oh god, I've had it here. Um, it was against Joel Hume. And it was uh, White Scar Bikes with uh, Wolf Cavalry. So that was like, I looked at it and I thought, oh, bloody hell, that's going to be a nightmare. Um, he had like Iron Priest on there. Uh, he had uh, Bike Sander. He had Khan. He had quite a lot of two plus save characters on the Wolves. And uh, he was using some fantastic tactics, actually. For instance, he was moving the bike squads ahead um, to get like really, really close to me. And then what he'd do is he'd, he'd move the, the wolf characters at the back of the bike unit, clip on the back of the bike unit. And then when the bike unit assaulted, then the wolf characters basically got into assault the next turn. But they were getting something ridiculous like 30-inch assault moves just from doing that. So it was a really, really good tactic, just just catapulting characters all over the board, um, which I was quite impressed with and I wasn't expecting at all. Well, yeah, I've seen that happen a few times, people just adding characters onto the back and slingshotting them around to get them where they need to be. Yeah, it, it, it was really, really good tactic. Um, I, actually, I actually got to choose whether I went first or not. It was Hammer and Anvil. And I knew that he could scout, but I got the Warlord trait where I got plus one to my C's initiative. So the idea for me was if he scouts, I've got a pretty good chance of seizing initiative. And then I can get a hell of a lot of shots on him first turn and quite possibly whittle down, whittle down a unit or two um, with that. Uh, he went for it. He scouted at the beginning of the, the, the game. Uh, I didn't seize, so he ended up getting first turn with the scout, and he was literally on top of me turn one. I thought, right, I've had it here. Uh, I shot as much as I could, didn't get very far. All of his grav bikes got in range, uh, all of his uh, wolves got in range, and then turn, I think it was turn two, he was on top of me. And he was absolutely hammering the living daylights out of me. I had virtually nothing nothing I could do. He, he just came in. Um, but this is where I've had quite possibly one of the luckiest games ever, where every time he killed my, um, my lords, they kept getting up. And in total, uh, my lords got up six times in total. I thought you were going to say six times each for a minute, though. No, in total, which is like an awful lot. I mean, that's, that's a hell of a lot of times to get up. Um, and every time they got up, it seemed to be in my turn. So they'd they'd go over something, kill a few models, go back into assault, kill a couple of models, get killed, get back up again. 
And, and this happened throughout the whole game. And, and what it gave me chance was every time in my turn, or at the end of his turn, when I'd get back up again and I'd be out of combat, uh, I'd be able to just shoot the crap out of him. And I just ended up doing that so much and he just never had enough models to to get over the, the bars so I couldn't get back up again. And that's what won me the game. I just whittled him down enough so when turn five came along, I could actually speed up the board with the flyers uh, and then drop the troops on the objectives. You found he was a bit tied up with the Lords because he kept getting back up, whereas yeah. if he'd managed to stay down, he would have had a bit more freedom to move his wolves elsewhere. Yeah, he just couldn't leave them alone. He, he had to take on the barges. He, he just couldn't leave them. So, you know, he, he was just saying they were just too dangerous to leave alone. Now, if he'd have if you'd have killed the barges earlier, they never got up. Um, he could have got right up to the other end of the board and just sat in the objectives and there would have been pretty much nothing I could have done. Uh, but because they just kept getting up, I just kept having loads of opportunities just to take a model here and a model there. And when you look at a bike unit, there's a lot of points invested in them. So when a unit loses a couple of bikes, um, it's nowhere near as efficient. So that ended up being a win. Cool, so three decent wins at the end of day one. Yep. This is, I know you were texting a few of the guys on WhatsApp on Saturday night, dreading your game the next morning, so I need to tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah, well, I knew the next game would be against Rob Maidley, or Rob Shubis Maidley, as he's known on here. Um, and he's got Necrons, but he took the AV-13 wall. Uh, he also had Haywire Cryptex in there and Lord Barges, uh, and it was a kill point game. Now, I had to be really, really strategic about this game because uh, game five was going to be the scouring. And I knew that in the scouring, because he had so many scoring vehicles, he would absolutely annihilate me in the scouring mission. So I had to look at this kill point mission in such a way that I either played for the draw and then, you know, hope for the best on game five and see who I get put up against. Or I've got to go balls out and try and beat him. Was it just a five-game event? So you knew if you drew, you may be playing him next game for the win? Possibly. Yes, as well, yeah. Um, and I didn't fancy playing Robin the Scouring for the win because, as I said, he's just got too many scoring vehicles. And anything that I put down to kill him, he can kill me straight away. So it'd be tit-for-tat sort of thing. <clears throat> so I knew I'd have to make a stand in this kill point game. So we both set up on the board. It was Vanguard set up as well. And what we ended up doing was basically sitting still, keeping out of each other's 36-inch shooting range. And we stood still for three turns. So within five minutes, he was on turn three. Um, my flyers came on, went off, came on, went off. And then turn four, I pretty much got my whole army on the table. I thought, well, I've got to go for it, really. It's balls out time. So it I... does surprise me you being very cagey, whereas you're more of a screw it, I'm bored, I'm going for it kind of player. Yeah, I think Rob would have sat there for like six weeks and just got on with it. You know, he wouldn't have bothered but me. I, get, I do get bored. And sometimes it's a positive for me and sometimes it's a negative. I just have to go for it. Yeah, make something of it. So I went balls out turn four. 
Um, I got everything at the flyers. There was haywire stuff everywhere. There was Tesla everywhere. All the guns were in line to kill stuff. And we basically just shot the living daylights out of each other. Not a lot happened. He lost a couple. I lost a couple. Um, battered one of his Lord Barges. Got him down to, uh, I think it was, I think it was one wound and one hull point or something. And I had um, a full health uh, Barge Lord. So I thought, right, I've got this. Stuck my Barge Lord into him. Fluffed every single attack. He hit me once and killed me and I didn't get back up again. I thought, ah, shit. <laughs> it's going to be one of those games. It's just not going to happen. Um, and, and I just couldn't, I, I just couldn't shoot enough out of him. I, I just couldn't pin him down. I couldn't kill enough. Uh, he was taking my flyers down for fun, uh, which I was, which I wasn't expecting. And my dice were just crap, but his were good. So he ended up winning the game, and I think that was an eighteen-two. Was it close on kill points in the end? <clears throat> Excuse me. I think there was about three or four kill points in it, so not a lot. But, be- but a small win, and enough basically. Yeah, it's well because it was um, because it was like a win lose draw rather than you know a decent kind of staggering point system. Um, it, it was basically just a full on win for him. I mean, luckily he only got eighteen rather than twenty, and I got two rather than one. Um, and you know, at any tournament you want to try and nick as many points as you possibly can. So I was quite happy with the two points. I was thinking, well, what's going to happen next? Now, um, ironically, uh, before this game, um, Joel had lost one game to me and I'd lost a game to Rob. So in the final, it just so happened to be Rob versus Joel. And I was on table two and I was, was Rob unbeaten at this point yeah so Rob's unbeaten yeah so Rob basically had the tournament in his hand done um, but we knew that he would have a very a very hard game versus job because all of his stuff's on the floor and his, his bikes and cav everywhere and his grav everywhere so I knew that would be a tough match uh, and I ended up playing another Necron player, uh, a guy called Mark Milton. And he had a very, very, very similar list to mine, apart from he had one Barge Lord less, but he had Wraiths. He had um, Ghost Ark. And he had Flyers. So I looked at this and I thought, this is going to go either way. And I thought, again... Do I go balls out? Do I wait for the result from Joel and Rob to see whether I should push my game or be a bit more defensive? Because at this point, I'm playing for either, I thought, third place, possibly second place, if I could get there, and depending on my results in this game. Um, So true to fashion and true to form, I just went balls out. So first turn... Two Lord Barges go forward. The three Annihilation Barges go forward. Everything just goes forward. And I think, right, I'm just going to go for it and see what happens. Um, uh, unfortunately for Mark, he hadn't read the FAQ. 
So there's a lot of things which he didn't know about. Uh, things like the barge lords could um, skim over flyers and hit them. Um, and for some reason, he didn't know that if he came on from reserve, he couldn't assault because he put his wraiths in reserve, which I thought was quite strange. Um, so he made like a couple of little mistakes and a few things didn't know rule wise. And then we got to, I think it was about turn three or turn four. And he, we just called it because he, he virtually had nothing left. I, I just went through his whole army, but it so easily could have been uh, the other way around. Um, so that was uh, a tabling for me. And then it was all just reliant on what was happening on table one then. How many points did that leave you on at the end of the five games then? I can't remember exactly what points I was on, but I knew that I knew that I was doing well because I had I think it was through I think it was three tablings. Um two tablings, sorry, a big win. And then that loss, but I did get the extra, the extra couple of points on the loss. So it was all down to, you know, what happened on table one. And we knew that if Joel beat Rob, then the results could go quite the opposite way. Then I mean, I could have ended up getting better up the uh, up the table. So turn five, uh, Rob had somehow managed to wing his way around and win the game. The game went to turn six. At the end of turn six, it was a draw. The game carried on to turn seven. At the end of turn seven, Joel won. So now the results were completely up in the air because uh, the three of us had lost the game each. Everybody's points were were pretty close. You know, there may have been a few points in it. Um, and if you know Rob, he's, he's by now he's kicking himself. <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine how Rob would be. He's having an absolute fucking paddy. (laughs) I bet you were loving that, weren't you? Well, he's my mate and he's my teammate and all that from the Dudley team. But you know what we're like? If we can take the piss out of each other, we will, won't we? It's just our way of doing things. So we just took the piss out of him. (laughs) (laughs) Which is quite funny. Uh, Sorry, he's having a cup of tea. So we just waited, and I thought, well, I thought I've definitely got third place. So I'll be happy with third place, and it looks like it'll be the last Battlefield Birmingham as well. So it'd be nice to go out on a height. And then when the results were called out, Harry came out, did the results, and he calls out third place, and it's Chris Dickinson. Yeah, just looking at the results, I found he had 78 points in the end. Yeah. Out of a possible 100. Yeah. Now, Chris could have actually won the tournament uh, with his nids. He had the... Oh, what's that? The Skyblight. That's it, it Skyblight. I was going to say spammy, shitty formation. But, yeah, that's the one, Skyblight. Same thing. Um, but his first game, he got seized upon and had all his monstrous creatures out in the open and got absolutely annihilated. But looking at results, if he'd have had a better first game, he'd have completely walked the tournament. So then we're thinking, well, hold on a sec, what's going on here then? You know, what's going with first and second place? So we knew it, was, it must have been so close. So everybody was just waiting. It was all, you know, deadly silent waiting for the results to come out. Uh, then Harry said, 
between first and second place, the the battle points were equal, so we had to go down to victory points, and there was one victory point between first and second place, which I've never ever seen a tournament ever before. So that's not one battle point, but one victory point. Yeah, one victory. So it's tour- sorry, tournament points. Um, one and two was the same, and on VPs there was one point in it. So was really really close then. <laughs> yeah. So when you hear all this time on on podcasts and blogs, play for every VP, play for every objective, every kill point. You know, just you have to do it. It's one of the things you have to do because sometimes it does come down to the wire. Um, so Harry called out second place. It was Joel, and then there was like, like people going pushed yeah what's going on and then i really couldn't believe it when harry said you know first place was me i thought shit what happened rob's you've only gone and done it (laughs) yeah i somehow jammed it rob's face dropped like a stone which was really bad for rob but it was quite funny at the same time so where did he finish up in then if he wasn't even in the top three after having it almost i I think he finished I think it was something stupid, like about 6th or 7th, I think. Have you, have you got the result sheet there? Yeah, let me just double-check this. Arch, I think it was 4th, because I remember him posting on Facebook oh, about fourth, it. it 4th, was it? Yeah, he finished in 4th, uh, just victory points behind Chris in 3rd. Yeah, I knew it was close. Very, very close indeed. But it was a great tournament, and it was great to give the Necrons the last hurrah, because we've got no idea what GW's going to do to them in the next month or so. So yeah, we've so all got our fingers th- crossed that they're going to be good still. Yeah. Um, it'd be interesting to see once those and Blood Angels are out. Well, either one of them. I mean, I'd like Blood Angels to be good because I enjoyed using them in Fifth Ed. They were always a good laugh. And, they, you know, they could actually do something. They're, they're a tournament-winning list if you played it right and got the right matchups. Um, and I just hope they do something good with it. But again, Necrons, they, they need to show them a bit of love. Yeah. That's the plan anyway. Cool. Well, thank you very much for coming on and getting that recording That's done. That's right, mate. And I will see you this weekend, mate. Yes, for Chinese, Cider and 40k. What a winner. Awesome. See you in bed. <laughs> Hi, welcome back. Um, after last week's pretty exciting discussion where we got into all manners of uh, divergent topics on 40k competitive rankings, tournament formats and like the future of competitive 40k in the community, uh, myself and Matt Robertson uh, got together and Matt reached out to a number of prominent 40k celebrities from the international scene over there in North America um, and we have got together a pretty cool um, round table uh, for you guys this episode uh, on um, competitive 40k and the ranking systems that are currently being employed in uh, the US. So we uh, kick off with Reese from Frontline Gaming, who's also the organizer of the LVO and Bay Area Open. Hello, sir. Hey, how you doing? Uh, we have got Chip from Torrent of Fire, which is the new go-to spot 
uh, for rankings and tournament results. Hello, hello. And we've got Andrew Gonyo, who's captain of the US ETC team, and he is also the man in charge of the rankings for selection of that team as well. Hey, Alex. Um, so, guys, um, obviously you're in the swing of uh, tournament season over there in the, in the States. Um, got a number of uh, cool events coming up. Um, and I think the next big, big one on the horizon is LVO Reese in February. Is that right? Next uh, really big GT, although there's a ton of events between now and then. Um, the calendar out here is like you can go to as many events as you want to go to. It's really great to see the, the scene thriving so well. Brilliant stuff. Um, now, obviously, it's a pretty large landmass out there. Um, and your East Coast and West Coast scenes are you know, pretty, pretty separate. Um, but there's a number of sort of big events that see people sort of meet in the middle or, or make the trip out there. Uh, LVO can be could definitely considered one of those. Um, how long have you guys been running LVO for? We've been running tournaments uh, as organizers for five years now. And the Las Vegas Open, this is the second year for the LVO, and it's already almost sold out. We had to, we ran through our first uh, room block of I don't know, 400 rooms or something like that, 500 rooms in the first month. We had to expand it. Um, and that one's 96% uh, booked, too. And the 40K Championships has a handful of tickets left. It's going to hit 256 and be sold out about four months before the event. So we're really pleased with how popular it is. And then we, we have a million other events, too, um, other games and systems. So. And people say 40K tournaments are dead. Yeah, that, that amuses me. Uh, on the West Coast, we have, like, waiting lists and stuff. Um, the, the 40k tournaments are not dead at all. There's been a couple events that, for a number of reasons, have had slower than average attendance. But it's that's not indicative of the scene as a whole. It's just there's a million other factors in play, like marketing and such, that you have to consider before making some sweeping generalization. Do you think the location's helping in that one as well, being in Vegas? Oh, of course. Yeah. I was going to chime in with that as well because you know when it comes to when it comes to scraping the money together and you know, packing my bags and flying out to another country to play 40k. Um, obviously, you know, the quality of competition is important, but the setting is important as well. And, you know, Las Vegas is one of the coolest places on the face of the planet to, to spend a week in. Um, what uh, hotel are you guys in? Yeah, so it's at the Flamingo, which is right there on the Strip. We got a, a really good deal on the rooms. It was only 63 bucks a night. Uh, for a double queen. So it's ridiculously cheap. And uh, getting to and away from Vegas is also really cheap because the hotels subsidize a lot of the flight. Reese, is that a, is that the same hotel as last year? No, it's next door to it. Okay. We were at uh, Bally's last year. In the oh, Bally's in the Paris is pretty awesome as well. I was there yeah, last yeah. year. Yeah. We, we had to go to the Flamingo because Bally's didn't have a ballroom big enough. <laughs> Good problem to we've, have. Uh, yeah. We've increased our square footage by double. It's twice as big as it was last year. I um I go out to Las Vegas every year in July for um a thing called the Evo Championships, which is um for like video games, for fighting games like Street Fighter and Tekken and all that sort of stuff. Cool. Um, and they were at Bally's two years ago, and they had to move as well. That's actually moved to the LVH, which was a pretty horrible hotel off strip. But again, it was the same problem. They couldn't. They literally couldn't get um, anywhere with a big enough room, so they ended up having to move. Um, but those, it's called, guys, those guys actually hit us up. Yeah? Yeah, they wanted to piggyback, see if we could 
team up. <laughs> what, the, what they really wanted was for us to take all the financial risk and then to like, get some of the space. And I was like, yeah, it's, it doesn't sound like such a hot deal, but thanks for calling. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, it definitely sounds um, pretty exciting. I'm, I'm sure some of the guys from the UK are going to be trying to head out there in 2016. I think they're aiming for so. Uh... Yeah, we'd love to have you guys. We we get people from uh, New Zealand, Australia. We got a bunch of the Swedes. Um, it's a blast. I mean, it's it's Vegas, right? You can exactly. Out, I can understand. It. I can understand why people want to go out there. You know, definitely, definitely a wonderful place to go. And if you haven't been there before, I can definitely recommend it. Um, yeah, I was there last year, and it was a blast. Uh, will you guys be streaming that event? It's it's difficult to do that because they charge exorbitant rates. I think what we'll try and do is set up a hard line. To okay. stream the top table, but um, to have Wi-Fi in the hall is like five thousand dollars. It's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. But, um, and Chip, the, thanks again for your help last year. That was invaluable. Yeah, absolutely. It was a it was an awesome event. It was. I've been telling everybody that uh, that is thinking about going. How even though you're playing, you know, the same ridiculous number of games in a weekend, for some reason I never felt rushed. And I don't know if it's just like the West Coast laissez-faire attitude or what, but. <laughs> It was awesome. Like I never felt like I was like, oh god, I overslept. I'm gonna be late, or you know, I just I didn't have that that urgency that made me like anxious all the time. Yeah, we start late. We start like noon or eleven, and we I tried to wrap. I it up. can't imagine that you'd be able to do a tournament in Las Vegas that started at like eight nine o'clock in the morning. That just is, that's contrary to everything that Las Vegas stands for, pretty much. Exactly. And we we went to the Throne of Skulls back when GW was running it. And the, their first round, day two, was at like 9 a.m. And like half the field didn't show up. <laughs> so it was like, yeah, that's not a good idea. People are here to have fun and go out and enjoy themselves. So let's not set ourselves up for failure. Um, so obviously you mentioned Throne of Skulls and the old GW events and stuff. Um, do you want to talk to us a little bit about the lack thereof and sort of the changeover between... Um, any sort of games workshop support for the competitive tournaments and you know how that sort of changed um in the states yeah i mean as you know um it's different in each region but in, in north america the kind of the guy who was doing it ed spedigue he has some health issues and he had to step down and with him leaving that was kind of like the last that was kind of like the last hurrah right like that was when gw really kind of pulled away from it mm. and the independent the independent scene kind of exploded at the same time. That was when fifth edition was cranking and fifth edition was like the, was the right environment for independent tournaments to, to rise up. And we saw it happen. And, um, now it's, it's like become a hobby in and of itself for, for people to try and run a GT in their local area, which I think is great. And now we have so many of them that GW really doesn't have to go back and do that and take on that financial risk as they did before. They do still support, the tournament scene, like if you have a store like we do, a brick-and-mortar shop, mm. they'd still provide prize support. Um, and, you know, we, we still talk to them, and we're trying to coax them into coming back to have a presence in the tournament scene. Hopefully that'll happen. But from a business perspective, they don't need to do it anymore. Like, mm. it, it's being done for them. So, Yeah, I'm really happy with the community-ran events. The only thing I wish, you know, Games Workshop would do is just admit that people play 40k competitively because for better or worse there's a whole lot of people doing it um and they are not very 
you know, quick to support that. And I'm not talking prize support. I'm talking, you know, like rules and errata and FAQ support. If they were, you know, just a little more hands-on with with providing... Even know, just acknowledging it a little bit more, right? Right, yeah. Just acknowledging it rather than just saying, nope, we, we make models. So what do you guys... I'm sorry to go off track from the main topic of discussion for today, but what do you guys think about this stuff um, that's sort of come out this week that sort of everyone is sort of uh, talking about regarding... Um, games workshops attitude towards the hobby and you know what that means to them and you know that sort of side of things i've seen quite a few um, discussions popping up online yeah there's a uh, petition going around yeah yeah (laughs) i mean you know probably nothing is going to come of it but it's i think it's good that the community is taking action and speaking out saying hey this is what we want please give us what we want we love your product um and i've always found it fascinating and, and interesting that GW is a company that has their customers literally screaming at them what they want and they act like it's an, at least it appears that they act like they're not interested or it's an inconvenience to listen where other companies spend millions of dollars to get that data. Um, mm, mm. I've always found that to be really interesting, but you know, every company's different. We don't see what happens behind the curtain because they don't communicate with their customers very much. No, so. I mean, obviously you had, you know, in the last 18 months to, to year, the complete um, withdrawal of all social media presence from Games Workshop. Um, you know the, the 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 closure of all their Facebook groups, the, the the Twitter accounts, and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, like they've definitely, like as you say, gone completely contrary to what many other companies are doing right now in terms of um, uh, accruing that data and interacting with their their marketplace. Yeah, it was very strange when they pulled back all of their social network stuff because. I, you know, so I, I I do product management for a living, and and like Reese was saying, I mean, this is you know the the data that people are paying tons and tons of money to get, and they just threw it away. Um, rebuilding those social networks is going to be challenging, even for a company that's got as captive of an arg, of a market as Games Workshop does. So it just you know even if you wanted to change the direction, even if they were going to rebrand, which I don't think they're doing, you know, it it just didn't make a lot of sense to me to to kind of wipe their hands clean of it you know it's not like it was a very you know ugly community you know it was that all of their facebook pages their twitter pages they all seemed positive they seemed supportive and so it just the decision didn't make a lot of sense i mean that's the that's the the one real strength um of the 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 games workshop um the marketplace is the the passion right um that that's the thing that's always grabbed me you know whether it's whether it's positive or or critical or or just outright negative and sort of inflammatory, the the, the passion is is undeniable, and you know to to really disregard that is is is, is like, as you said like quite puzzling. It's very interesting to to know what their motivations are behind that. Um, but let's move back onto the topic. And speaking of sort of data ac- acquisition, um, let's talk a little bit about um, what Torrent of Fire is. A lot of our um, UK listeners may be aware of a site that was around called Ranking a- HQ, which we used here in Europe um, to sort of get together uh, some sort of semblance of uh, competitive rankings of, you know, who was the best player uh, based on results. But um, you guys at Torrent of Fire Chip have, have launched your site um, and it's really, you know, gone from strength to strength recently whilst coupling with the live streaming aspect. Do you want to talk us a little bit about um, what Torrent of Fire is and what your your your, your mission statement is as a, as a site. Sure. Uh, so Torrent of Fire is a, a, a company that I launched just a, over a year ago. 
Um, we debuted at Nova Open 2013. And our goal was to provide tools and content um, at, at a higher level, specifically for competitive Warhammer 40K gamers. Um, so if, if you're looking for articles about Black Templar fluff, we are not for you. <laughs> um, and, and I come right out because a lot of people have that argument about fluff versus competitive versus, you know, win at all costs or whatever you want to call it. And I just want to say up in front that we are, we are definitely focused on the competitive side of miniature gaming. And, and it's been going really well. Um, so we, we do two things. The first is we, bail, we built tournament software. It's all web-based. It allows you to run your, your tournament, including pairings, scoring, um, entering in data about how people won. All of that uh, is done via a web browser. So you can do it anywhere you have internet, no matter what computer. It can run on a tablet. You can run it on a phone if you want, although... <laughs> You know, entering in a lot of data on a phone can be tricky. Um, but then the other thing we do is we take all of that data, we compile it into our database, and then we have um, freelance writers that go analyze the data, take some of their personal experiences, and write articles about it. And we think that, or at least I think, that the articles are um, at, a, at a pretty high level. You know, we actually have an editor on staff. We're paying our writers, which I think, you know, sets us apart a little bit. And it's been going really well. Um, as of this month, we have uh, 14,000 games in our system. So in just a year, we've we've had tons and tons and tons of games, and we're really starting to to see some great trends coming out. Um, turns out Eldar are really good, you know, but some other not so obvious. Definitely ones. needed to spend many hours poring over the data to find out that I'm sure. That's right. That's right. Um, but you know, it, just beyond you know the really obvious how powerful are Eldar. Um, if you read some of the articles on our site, we have some really great data analysis going on where people are, you know, identifying what are the weak matchups for Eldar. You know, are they actually better with Dark Eldar? Uh, turns out they're not. Um, particularly now, that's not really not anymore. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, not not really worth discussing. Rest in peace, Baron. But you know, it's it's great to see all of the you know data coming together because even if you had a good idea, you know, if you're a top player, you kind of know these things already. You feel them in your gut, but now you have validation. Um, and so the the newest thing, and this is more towards the topic we're talking about, the newest thing we're coming out with, and it'll be out this week, is ELO rankings. Um, so we finally had enough data that I felt comfortable running an ELO algorithm on all of the games that we've had played in the system so far. And so I'm really excited about that. It's, it, it's been a long time in coming and I, I know Reese is really, really um, into ELO also. ELO is super popular in esports. It's super popular for, you know, chess, obviously where it all started. Magic does some sort of ELO. So I think it's going to lend a lot of credibility to, to the competitive scene. Do you want to explain to the people that are listening, scratching their heads, exactly what ELO is and how it works? <laughs> sure. So ELO <laughs> or LO, uh, it's, sometimes it's capitalized, sometimes it's not. It was originally created as a chess rankings or rating system. And what it does is it, it looks at the, um, the outcome of an individual game. So you versus me. It decides what the most likely outcome of that game is. And then based on the actual outcome, we'll award points for the winner and subtract points for the loser. Uh, the difference is it's all based upon the strength of your opponent. So, for example, let's say 
you know, I'm playing against Andrew and Andrew is a very good player and I am, you know, a, a middle of the pack player. If I go into that game, the expected outcome is that Andrew will win. Mm. And that's great. And so Andrew wins, he gets five points and I lose five points because that's expected. But if I go into that game and I win, and that was the unexpected result, based on our strengths as players, I would get 30 points and Andrew would lose 30 points. And so it's it's really driven around the quality of your opponent and very much not driven around um, how many games Volume you play. Volume of play, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that that's the real determining factor. It's designed to provide reasonable you know, rating results without somebody having to just grind out their games. And um, what have you seen um, in terms of response from this, in terms of the uptake? Is there much interest in it out there from, from this um, supposedly non-existent competitive scene that everyone doesn't take part in, according to Games Workshop? Or have you seen um, you know, uh, much interest in it? So we we have not publicized that this is available yet. So you guys have the the front run, the scoop. Uh, awesome. Yeah, you got the scoop. We had some ratings originally um, that were really just based around win percentage and and number of games played, which, like I said, is not what I wanted to do. But it it, it worked with the data we had, mm. and a lot of people you know found them interesting. I mean, everybody wants to know where they rate out. Even if you're in the middle of the pack, you still want to know. Are you ahead of your friend who's also in the middle of the pack? You know, it's not always about being number one. It's just knowing where you shake out. And, you know, Reese has, has his rating circuit. I'm sure we'll get to that in a minute. And it's, it's really doing the same thing. You know, even if you're not number one, just being able to identify, you know, be competitive with your friends, mm. be competitive with the guy you're facing across the table that you've never met before. You know, it, it all just ends. It lends this competitive spirit and a good one, not a bad one. Um, to to the non-existent 40k competitive scene. <laughs> um, so I'm looking on your on your website right now, and not, aside from you know the, the the rankings and the tournament results and stuff as well, you also have um, interesting sort of tactical um, articles on there written by top players. I can see one from from Andrew right this second in front of me. Um, how that has that been? Uh, received from the from the usership because obviously you know you guys must be doing quite well um you've got you're paying your writers and i can see no adverts on the front of your uh, on your website so that must mean you're basically funded by subscription so you must have a decent uptake at the moment um what's the what's the reception been on these these tactical articles yeah i think the tactical articles have been well received um and like you said all of this is non-advertisement driven um, just, it's just a different model that we decided we want to go towards. I don't know if that's the best model, but it's the way we're doing it right now. Um, the best part about our writers, I think, is that because they're really engaged in the content, when people comment, you actually get, you know, Andrew Gagno writing back to you, which for somebody that doesn't, you know, live down the street from Andrew, like I do, it actually is really exciting, you know? <laughs> He's uh he's he's won one of the biggest tournaments in the world. He's a top player. He's the captain of the ETC team, and he just answered your comment. You know, so not only is is the the point of view of these top players. You know, we have we have Andrew, we have Nick Nanavati, we have um, some really great data analysis people. Um, Evan Slagle is one of them. Mm. Uh, Matthew DeFranza, another great writer that we have. And so not only are you getting their you know their unique point of views, which you might be able to find in a few other places. But you're getting to interact with them, and I think that is the 
the most important aspect of the articles that they're writing. Now, in terms of ranking players in 40K, I mean, how important do you think that actually is? Because if you walk into your local store, um, you would never get the idea that that was even in any way relevant. Obviously, they have sort of like... So the, the Games Workshop stores, they might have their sort of one-day events of a weekend, which are, you know, fun and games and what have you. Um, but if you look in other areas outside of even wargaming, you know, we mentioned it earlier, the, the esports aspect, um, which I would correlate quite closely to, uh, to competitive wargaming. Uh, in terms of hobbies and, and, and time spent and, and, and sort of just basic um, skill sets. Um, how important do you think that is to, to give this information to people out there? So I think it's pretty important. And the reason I think it's important is because it, it quantifies a level of effort. Um, in professional sports, in, you know, even in some esports, you can quantify that level of effort with the amount of money a team or a player has won. Mm. Fortunately, there's not a lot of money in Warhammer 40 <laughs> right now. Thanks, Games Workshop. Um, but this allows us to quantify the level of effort that you know any of these players is putting into it. And and like you said, it's not going to be super important if you just go down to your local store and you're playing against you know your buddy or or a new guy. I mean, it's it's not super super important then. And that's not what we're trying to stress. However, I do think it's important for people that, you know, pack up a beautiful army, head a very far distance, travel to a major event and are playing against, you know, the upper echelons, you know, I think it's important to quantify that effort. And I think that it lends credibility to, you know, that, that these people are, are training for it, are preparing for it and are really, you know, spending a, a decent chunk of their time trying to get better at it. And so I think that's the thing that, that sets, you know, these top players apart. And I think that's the thing that needs to be recognized with a, with a ranking system. So let's, um, let's move on to someone to whom the ranking systems are very important um, and determining who the best players are. Um, Andrew, you are not only obviously a contributor to Torrent of Fire for their articles, but you are the captain of the USETC team and you are responsible for... Um, working out who deserves to be on there. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about that process and, and, and what, what's that based on? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So, um, and one thing I want to say that I was thinking of while Chip was finished up talking is uh, one of the things that I actually really like about Tornifier um, is that it also makes it accessible. So while it may not be the most important thing in the world where uh, I rank if I'm just a guy playing with his friends at a game store, it, it makes the tournament scene something that's quantifiable, they can look up, they can find information on, which it wasn't always. So I think it, it lends some accessibility to players who want to enter into it, which I think is good for the, the whole tournament scene just at large. But uh, so Team America. So <clears throat> every year we have to send eight guys over to, uh, to Slummit in Europe <laughs> and, and hang out with, with shady bunches like Matt and the Welsh. Yeah, well, I don't know who's the shady considering the stuff you guys get up to before you get there. Oh, it's probably us. Um, what happens on tour stays on tour. <laughs> but, you know, we want to come up with the, the eight people that, you know, are going to create the strongest team to uh, give us a competitive chance. 
uh, also who, you know, have worked hard enough and really earned it. You know, some people, and it's not for everyone, have worked really hard to get on the team uh, to improve their competitive play. And, you know, we want to recognize that and we want to make sure we do it in, in a way that uh, is both quantifiable so they, they know they can get on the team. It's not just arbitrary. It's not friends picking friends. Um, I couldn't stop anyone from getting on the team if I wanted to. Uh, the qual circuit's published. There's a formula. If you win events and you win enough of them, you're on. Um, and I, I think that's kind of great. Uh, and it also recognizes the fact that since everyone's working so hard, and you know, it's a big time and financial contra, you know, commitment that these guys have to make to go overseas. Um, you want to make sure that everyone's pulling their weight. Because if you have a couple weak links, suddenly you know you're you're kind of wasting the experience of the other guys. So, the qual system that I set up when I took over the captaincy uh, for this year, uh, Greg Sparks passed it on to me back. Uh, I can't really remember. It was it was sometime in early 2014, and at that point he said, you know, I want to talk to you about redesigning the qual system. Come up with what your best system would be. And so I came up with our current one in collaboration with Greg and, and Ben Moley and you know, other folks. And in the past, what we had done is we had taken four returning players from the previous ETC team that had scored the highest. So we had the captain and three returners. And then we had four people who won the largest U.S. events. Because at the time when the system was established, we didn't have a lot of U.S. events. And Reese mentioned this earlier. You know, he said you know, the, the biggest GT of the, of the big ones coming up is LVO, and he's right. And then he also mentioned, but well, there's a heck of a lot in between. And so my goal when I redesigned the system was to make sure that all of those ones in between were recognized and the players that went to them were recognized as well. Um, so instead of it being the winner of four separate events, get the last four slots of the team, it's your kind of uh, amalgamated rating from winning all of the events in the country. See, all of your top five placings. It's not just first. Anytime you top five at an event in the U.S. with a track record of being around for two years or more, unless you've run events for a long time and it's it's recognizable that it's, you know, good results. Um, 50 players or more, been around for a little while, and a fairly normal format. And by normal, I just mean close to the, the format that I expect players to play at the ETC. Because it doesn't help me if someone played a, a Titans only game and <laughs> yeah. won, and then ends up at the ETC and Titans aren't allowed. <laughs> mm. um, and that's not to take anything away from those, but if you're participating in a Titans only game, ETC where it doesn't allow any probably isn't for you anyways. Exactly. So <clears throat> we we take the best from those events. Uh, the points that you earn from each event you play at, uh, they scale with attendance, and they scale with. Um, <clears throat> Trying to look at, and they scale with the, the placing that you get at the event. So if you place fifth, you get 20% of the points for the event. If you place first, you get 100% of the points. Uh, next year, I'll probably be moving to just first or fourth because we only take the top four players in the circuit. At the end of the year, so our, our circuit's about to wrap up at the end of December. Um, I'll total up all the points, and we'll see who it is. And I've, I've kind of given an update on Torn of Fire recently so as well. So um, what's the, the period of time that your circuit, your qualification um, is is running for so i'll be running them all one year long so okay, this so one full fully for 12 months yep okay. takes everything so uh for instance the first event that went into this year's circuit was lvo actually mm. um it was a first year event but they're not first year organizers uh they had 170 ish people sorry reese if i muck that up 
196 showed up. 196. So they had a ton of people. They had a, they had a really well thought out tournament process. And, and that brings up one thing that I do want to mention is that uh, I've gotten feedback from folks saying, well, when you say an event has to have a normal format, you're just trying to exclude Forge World. Reese's events use Forge World. I don't care. Um, as long as the event put a lot of thought into how they made up their format, it works for me. And and that's all I'm looking for. So Reese's events are, are awesome. They run really well. I hope they make it out to LVO one of these years. But um, yeah, so that was the first one in the circuit. There's about 10 or 12 others that are contributing points as opposed to in years past. Only four events could win you a slot. Um, we've still got three left this year, I want to say. We have 11th Company, which should make 50 players. Last year, is it like 90? Um, we have Du Bois GT a uh, week after that. And we have Renegade GT a week after that. So we're, we're kind of back to back to back. Mm. And that covers a lot of the country. And that was one of the goals is that, you know, if you were a player trying to get on the team, there were four events in the, the huge span that is North America that you could play at to get on the team. Well, that's, the, that's the very big difference between you guys and, and us guys over here. If you want to qualify for uh, any of the teams, um, any of the four teams that we get. <laughs> um, Jerks. <laughs> you're not going to have to travel more than, say, you know, five or six hours to get to anywhere, um, mm-hmm. be that by plane or, or car. Um, but for you guys, if you live, you know, in the middle of, you know, buttfuck Arkansas and you want to play, you know, in, in a major, it's it's certainly a, a bit more difficult for you to get to one of those four events exclusively. And, you know, it's a, it's a dice game. Obviously, this, the most skillful players do all generally um, tend to tend to do the best but you know uh, it, it's nice that you guys have opened it up um, and and it and it has become more of more of a circuit um, as you said um, yeah that was the goal is just to make it more accessible to everyone so you know in years past you only had those four uh, just from where I sit and, and, and in Virginia next to chip I have a pretty good spot you know I have Nova right near me but going towards the end of the year uh, 11th companies in South Carolina I'd still consider that local and something I'd attend, that's eight hours for me for driving. Uh, Du Bois is six, and uh, Minnesota is Renegade GT, and I'm flying to that one. Mm. So, you know, it is what it is. We, we make our uh, our best effort to get to all these events and, and have fun and see folks, and if we get some points along the way, it's great. It scares me how you consider eight hours to be local. Eight hours was... You know what the best part is, Matt? Eight hours is my cutoff where I consider that I don't have to take a day off work. I leave at five <laughs> when I get off work. I drive there and I drive back Sunday night for work on Monday morning. It took me like eight hours to get to Washington. Then you'd consider doing that as a normal just <laughs> weekend event. It's crazy. We're dedicated. Oh. I drive down to LA for tournaments all the time. That's a five-hour drive through the most boring part of California. And you're and like, we don't even think we don't even think twice about it. You know. It's, Everything's just spread out. You get used to it. I think the norm in the UK is if people go in three hours, then yeah, that's traveling pretty far. Three hours is going going out of your way. You know, you're making some effort there for three hours. The heat to in Brighton was a bit of a one-off doing a six or seven hours, but. But one of the it. things you were saying actually, it was Alex, I think, was that the good players still win the events. That's one thing that we've seen. So in years past, I know Tony and Nick. Uh, the, the Wonder Twins have uh, always managed to lock down a spot by winning Dover Adepticon. Um, this year, they're top two on the circuit again because they placed at a bunch of events. So 
you know, it kind of all comes out in the wash, but mm. players in the past that probably wouldn't have been near the top rankings because they just didn't grab one of those events are now up there, and it's kind of anyone's game. So it's pretty neat. Um, so let's get on to um, back, let's get back to Reese um, because I, I want to talk to you about your your ITC um, circuit that you've you've established. Um, tell us a little bit about that and and why why you chose to to start that up. For reasons that have already been covered, uh, the <laughs> ITC the the whole purpose of the ITC is to create a stronger sense of community and to give more purpose to going to more events, right? It's like the rising tide lifts all, all ships. And it, it's just fun. Like, we've already covered it. Everyone likes to see where they shake up compared to everybody else, even if they're not a really competitive person. And it, it helps the other tournaments in the circuit to draw people that they maybe wouldn't have drawn because they're trying to pick up ITC points. Hmm. And we offer support. Uh, we have our own podcast, Signals from the Frontline, and we'll, we'll have the TOs come on and talk about their event, and we'll plug it. And it helps them to grow their event and thrive, and there's no reason not to join it, right? And we, we use a World Series of Poker model for the math behind the system, and really similar to what Andrew was talking about. We take your top four results, and we have a formula that is based off of the size of the event in terms of player count and then the number of rounds played. And that determines your total score. And the, the trick is to incentivize players to go to smaller events, but then also reward them for doing well at bigger events. But you don't want that gap to be so big that someone goes to a big event, wins, and then they're done, um, or make it so that the smaller events aren't worth attending. So mm -hmm. there's a little bit of a trick to it, but uh, I think we, we struck a right, the right balance. And it's proven to be really popular. The, the ITC, we now are international. We have uh, events in Japan, Canada, uh, all over the United States, mostly on the West, in the Western United States, but we do have some in Florida and in, in the Midwest and the North. Um, and they're not mutually exclusive. Like you could be in our circuit and you could also be in another circuit, which we're not trying to corner the market or anything like that. We're just trying to create a sense of connectivity between all the players and get them excited to go to more events. So it's, it's gone really well so far. I, I really like that concept of sort of like a collective community and um, cross-promotion because you know, as you said, that I, I, I've definitely heard you guys on the podcast mention about, um, you know, people that have tried to start up new events in their area and have, you know, contacted you um, to be part of the ITC. And, you know, you, you guys are, are helping them establish a, a competitive community in their area, whereas otherwise, if they're doing it by themselves, they might not have that um, that reach. You know, I know that a lot of people listen to podcasts and they might not be aware of stuff that is, you know, maybe two, three hours down the road from them um, that they could go to. So it, it, it's a definitely, definitely a, a really good thing. Um, and it's, and it's a, a model that's, that's used elsewhere in any other competitive endeavor you could possibly think of to, to strengthen it. So uh, definitely makes sense. Yeah. I mean, even if you're competing with someone with an event, you still want them to succeed. Like we don't want to see any tournament, go tits up, even if they're on the same weekend as one of ours, because it hurts the overall scene, right? So it's one of the things I like about this industry is that you have a lot of really smart, dedicated, driven people who are doing something that they love. And even if you're competing for the same market or attendees or whatever, we all still help each other out. It's friendly competition. So it's, it's a really good... Um, it's a really good network to be a part of. You know, I, we talk to each other all the time, all the TOs in Canada and in America. And 
we're always helping each other out like, hey, this worked for me. Hey, this didn't work for me. You know, it's a really positive community to be a part of and we want to see it grow and thrive. Um, and it's not all about us being the center of attention or whatever. We could care less. We want to see everyone having fun and see this whole thing grow and become something bigger. Chip and I have talked about it numerous times is that the, the end goal is to see this become something really big and cool like esports, where it, it adds a lot more excitement and uh, brings in people who may have never heard of tabletop gaming. And it's good for everybody. You know, everyone benefits with more people and more money and more fun. And there's no downside. Now, that's something that we started touching on last week in our discussions as we sort of rambled off topic. Um, and it brought up a couple of interesting points. And I know you've mentioned uh, esports there briefly, and we've mentioned it in this discussion as well. Um, we've obviously established who you guys are, what you're doing at the moment, and your motivations behind it. But, like, where do you guys, in an ideal world, see this 40K competitive community going, heading towards? You know, if, if you had your hands on the, on the tiller and you were, you were steering the ship, you know, like what direction would you guys like to, to see it see it going in, you know, two to five years time? Proper FAQs. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's, that's one bar. of the that's one of the real strengths of the independent community, and I really like respect the guys that get together and and and, and hash out these these um, these tournament FAQs and and engage with the community and identify, you know, pages and pages of feedback of you know rules queries and ambiguous wordings and put together you know the, the facts for the different tournaments and what have you um you know i i'm 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 relatively new to the tournament circuit um been in the hobby for about 20 years but in terms of competitive play it's only really been since like the middle of sixth i've really got involved with it and just seeing the effort the collective effort as as, as you said reese of the guys that just you know that just love doing this you know there's, there's no there's definitely no financial reward in it for anybody right now and no one no one in their right mind is actually putting the work in you know for these sort of things with the view to it being financially rewarding in the near future anyway and just that amount of love and passion is really infectious when you when you go to these events a lot of people may be listening and they might be a bit tentative of like the competitive scene there's a bit of a stigma there the the win at all costs uh stigma that people have but any event that i've been to i've just been overwhelmed by the positivity and the passion of people for playing this game yeah, the, the camaraderie is the A number one best part, like without question. Winning events is a blast. Doing well at events is a blast. But uh, it's the, the friendship and the camaraderie is the best, the best part. And you get that really a lot in this, in this community more than in esports because it's a face-to-face interaction. Mm. And we, it's one of my favorite things is seeing someone get the bug, get the tournament bug. It's so cool because you see someone who may have, like you said, have had some misconceptions about the kind of people that they would encounter or what it's going to be like. And then they go and then they get that excitement. And then it's like, when's the next one? When's the next one? When's the next one? I love, <laughs> I love seeing that because it's like all of a sudden it takes on a whole new uh, dimension. The game becomes something more than it was before and it has more meaning to the individual and they become a part of, you know, they form their own team. And it's like outside of work and family, this is the, the thing that they have for themselves to be excited about. And it's, it's rad. It's awesome. It's a, positive, uh, it's a positive thing. And I love seeing people get that, that enthusiasm because that's what drives us to, to do what we do is to create an environment where people can have that much fun and, and feel that engaged in what they're doing. Let me ask you guys a question. 
in esports, any of the games that are up there right now, StarCraft with Blizzard and Hearthstone with Blizzard as well, um, Dota, League of Legends, Counter-Strike, any of those games that are sort of like the top tier esports games, they're there off the back of money spent by the publisher of those games. Do you believe that it's possible to expand competitive 40k to a level in which people are sort of streaming worldwide on a regular level with decent production values and that sort of stuff without games workshop financial support for that so i think that it's not just that the the manufacturer is supporting it but they're also able to pull in sponsorships that are not just you know the war store and i love that the war store sponsors people but you know, in order for this game to get to the level of esports, yeah, Games Workshop supporting us would be awesome. But if there were some way to get into, you know, into the conversation with legitimate sponsors, and I know Reese is working towards this, and I love what he's doing. But you know, if if there was like, you know, think about things that the gamers love, like a Mountain Dew. So are you red- talking? You're talking non-endemic corporate partnerships rather than ones that are built around things within the hobby or the the community directly. Exactly. I'm yeah. talking about you know verticals that are that are uh, companion verticals essentially. Yeah. So, like I said, you know, like a, a Mountain Dew or a Red Bull or you know, yeah. I, I mean, there's there's tons of different ways you could go, but those kind of partnerships would lend you know, obviously money, but then, you know, additionally, credibility, um, potentially, you know, professionalism to a level that we haven't seen, you know, just, just really kind of driving the, I think that would be a huge step forward. And I think, you know, you said if, if my hand was on the tiller, that's what I would pursue right now. Now, let me ask you a question then, which, you know, playing the part of say a a mounted Jew or even like a sprint mobile or anything that's, that's relevant. Um, what, to you, I mean, they're going to ask you, what's going to be my return on investment, firstly? And secondly, what are the key points of interest to any audience from what you're doing? Because for them, they're going to need to know why, as a company that has nothing to do with what you guys are doing directly, am I going to put any of our time and money into what you're doing? What What do you see in the value of of the product that you guys are putting out there at the moment? It's the same thing in esports. For example, Monster sponsors the Evil Geniuses team for something to the tune of a million bucks a year, something like that. And what what they're gaining in return, their return on investment is exposure to their target demographic. So what we have to do is build build the numbers, right? We need to yeah. to to build the eyeballs on the page, uh, like Torn of Fire and the Team Stomping Ground guys are, are streaming, and it's awesome. Um, building the events, you know, look at Adepticon, they're in the, the four-figure range. You look at Gen Con, they're in the five-figure range of attendance. If we can somehow bring in those, those big-name sponsors uh, to come in and, and bring that cash infusion that allows you to grow, you expose the, the, your attendees, your eyeballs on the page to their product, and that, that's the exchange um, that occurs. And eventually, if you can develop professional sports for tabletop gaming. Um, they could have sponsorship of teams just like in NASCAR or anything else. They're going to want to back the winning horse and, and get all the attention that comes with that. But it's on us to build that network.
to add the value because we're getting there and every year we take another step down that road. But the numbers that we put up compared to esports, it's, you know, a factor, an order of magnitude smaller. But we're getting there, right? And that's why we have to work together to, to come up with ways to, to draw more people in to enjoy this. And uh, it would be easier if Games Workshop backed it and that would help. But I think we can do it on our own. I think we do see a little bit of a stepping stone with all the sponsorship we get at events for like prize sport and things like that. I like I know KR do a lot of things. I know Table War in, in the US, US do a lot, and like with your frontline gaming mats as well. There's quite a lot of event sponsorship on a smaller scale, which I think is possibly a stepping stone and should hopefully build up into bigger things. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of good stuff going on with sponsorships now. It's just you know, we're, we're kind of in the minor leagues and we got to move to the big leagues. And you know, I don't know if that analogy is going to resonate with, you know, folks around the world, but essentially, you know, we're, we're, we need to step up our game and, and it's getting there, you know, it, the, these big events that are really pushing attendance numbers. I mean, it's, it's, as they grow, it's almost unavoidable that, that these major sponsors are going to take notice. I mean, they, they're obviously looking for ways to, to push their product and, and, when you have a captive market like miniature gamers and, and miniature gaming is growing, even if 40 K, you know, people think it's, it's not growing. It is turns out. Um, but miniature gaming as a whole is definitely growing. I mean, there's a whole kind of revolution of live gaming right now. And so these, these marketing teams are going to take notice of that and they're going to want to get involved. And we just need to make sure that when they call somebody that you know, like, you know, like a Reese is, is, somebody that knows what they're talking about, somebody that has a network built is ready to pick up the phone and, and take that next step. <clears throat> okay. So we're at 46. All right, let's get another 15 minutes in of this because this is good. This is good. I'm enjoying this. Um... Okay, so let me, let me play devil's advocate for a moment. Um... Obviously, a lot of people are listening at home, and they're, um, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of us we we sound sort of like bright-eyed and starry-eyed and 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 dreamers in in a in an ideal situation. But if you start introducing things like you know prize pri- significant prize support, you know, more than two hundred dollars worth of, of of figures or carry cases or what have you, if we're talking thousands of pounds or dollars for for, for top three placings, like like you see in esports. Um, is that going to lead to more sort of contentious issues in terms of um, play? Because the big difference between tabletop wargaming and even something like chess and specifically esports is there's no social contract really there. You know, it's hard and fast. The rules are regulated of play either by programming and software or chess, which is you're locked into squares on the table. Um, there's no personal interpretation of the rules and there's no as i said social contract there when people are at the top table and they need a seven to charge and they you know they roll it and it looks no i'm not sure if that's in you know and it's for two thousand dollars are we going to see a situation where you know tempers are get heated like how, how do you think that would be uh, situation would be resolved. Uh, how, how do you how do you think that the the community will be able to to handle with that? You know, with with extra extra pressure of of prize money. 
I think if point. we're going to go up to that kind of big prize money kind of thing, we're going to need a lot tighter a rule set before we get to that level. I think yeah, as it is, it's too loose, too many different interpretations possible. I mean, even it. even even with the tightest rule set in the world, it's still a social contract. Like it's still down to in- interpretation, and it's still you're still measuring things by eye. You know what I mean? Like like I said, you know those grav guns are out of range. No, they're in range. You know, like are we going to need in play judges at every table for the top top eight bracket, or, or you know what what are we going to need? Uh, Reese, what are you going to say? Yeah, I was going to say I, I agree with Matt. Um, first of all, you'd have to have cut and dry, crystal clear FAQs and, and, and all that. But then you'd also have to have methodology in place for resolving things like what you talked about. Because, like you said, it's inevitable that it will happen. So as in other sports, you would have to have a, a preset, like, step one, step two, step three, this is how we resolve this, to make it as um, uh, objective as possible. So, like in the example you gave, you would have to have a situation where a player A says, uh, I don't agree. Player B says, I believe this is the case. Judge steps in, set methodology for resolving this dispute. They go through steps one through X, and then it's resolved. So at the highest level, at the top tables, you would, you would probably need a judge, just like you need a referee in, in sports. Mm. And uh, that takes away some of the, the more casual aspect of it, but if you're playing at a professional level, it would be a requirement hmm. um, in order for it to, to work. And if you had those methodologies in place and it was known to all players and you had like a, a set of stand, a set standard, it wouldn't be a surprise and you should be able to resolve conflict relatively easily. Do you feel that that would require significant um, manpower investment on the day at tournaments, you know, with, you know, more qualified judges? Because obviously, as we all know, in an ideal world, we'd have judges that know the, the rule book front to back and understand the FAQs and what have you, but that's not always the case at a tournament. Um, yeah. No, finding qualified judges, especially in 7th edition, is really difficult. <laughs> um, but, I mean, if we're talking, I mean, we're talking like a hypothetical situation when there's money, mm. right? You would have paid judges, just like you do like in Magic the Gathering. Uh, yeah, where people I- have to take tests and they prove that they have the knowledge um, and then they're, and they're compensated for their time, right? They have a skill set that's valuable, and you pay them for it. It's pretty simple business, but mm. we're not we're not there yet, right? It's it's so, all volunteer basis at this point in time. I mean, we're still in a situation where you know we've got controversy over over dice and people writing lists and what have you. So obviously, we've got a long <laughs> way of, of 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 getting our own house in order before we start um, start ex- building uh, building uh, renovating on the back and adding expansions onto it. Um, I want to talk about, um, you raised a really good point, Reese, about eyes. Um, eyes on the page or eyes on, on, on whatever we're doing and, and reaching a wider audience. Now, obviously, I've, I've seen from, from my interaction with esports that how important Twitch or, you know, as Justin TV, as it was called when it first launched, has been in terms of competitive gameplay because the idea of being able to sit down and watch pro players play you know, watch someone else playing a video game sounded so alien about five years ago. But now, you know, at any one time, you, there's, you know, millions of people doing it around the world right now. Um, Chip, you obviously run not only the Torrent of Fire website, but, you know, people would have seen the stream um, from Nova and, and other events. Um, what are your plans with the stream and, and what's the response been like in terms of people accepting the idea of just sitting in your house and watching someone else play Warhammer. So the stream has been really popular for major events. Like it was super popular at Nova 
Um, Jeff Robinson helped a lot with that with his gajillion Twitter followers. Um, but people really enjoyed not only, you know, not only following along on Torn of Fire with how players are doing, but actually watching it live and being able to identify, you know, maybe somebody made a mistake and that's mm. not how you do it. Um, or, or, you know, seeing some tactics that they wouldn't have considered. And that was really popular. Um, it's been more challenging getting people to watch our weekly streams. Mm. And I think Stomping Grounds is facing the same, the same issue. And I, it's really just a, at, at this point, I think it's just a matter of, of broadcasting technique and equipment um, the media is really challenging to broadcast well. Um, it, it's it's going to take some time and and you know maybe some some professional input, whether that's technology or whether that's you know personality, um, before we get to the point where people are really going to tune in to watch a stream regularly. I think commentary is a big part of it. I would and- love to see commentary at majors. That would be brilliant because. You definitely have the, the chat's really helpful. It's really helpful because you've got people in there that are insightful. They might not be of the same level as the people we're watching on the top tables, but you know they have a grasp, and you can sort of kind of get an idea of what's going on. But to have someone translate what they're seeing into a, into a you know a manner which the maybe a less skilled player can understand, that's what's really pushed the the esports audience out there, and, and really also driven an interest in competitive play as well because as more and more as you're educating more and more people about tactics and how to use their army and how things work they can go off and, and try and replicate themselves and you know you you, you actually increase the, the player base as well as the viewership yeah totally agreed it's it's a challenging issue logistically though mm. and one that i hope to solve with with future events but you know with with these esports events they have you know an arena set up basically you know they have um, you know, a place for the commentary to take place that's away from the game, so you're not interrupting the game. At the same time, it's quiet. Um, you know, we wanted to do commentary at Nova, and we had the equipment ready for it, but it was really loud. You know, um, <laughs> we're in the in in the middle of a gigantic gaming hall. It, uh, you know, there are 300 people surrounding you. They're all rolling dice. Some of them are drunk. You know, it was it was really <laughs> loud. And so, you know, I don't know if you move the top table or if you just you need to have some sort of sound booth. You know, that's that's the kind of, um, you know, professional step that I was talking about. And, you know, I, I think that there are a lot of people getting interested. You know, there's some battle reports that are getting, you know, better better than they were before. Frontline Gaming does great ones. War Games Consortium does really nice ones. Um, and so that's that's kind of pushing the envelope already. And it's, you know, it's it's just a, it's an evolution. It's definitely interesting for me, definitely exciting stuff. Um, I've been enjoying it a great deal. Um, thank you very much, you guys, for getting involved. Really appreciate it with it. Um, obviously, you guys need to check out torrentoffire.com, not only for your tournament results, but as I said, there's loads of really cool tactical uh, stuff on there. Um, so you can check that stuff out. Um, Reese, obviously, you've got um, Signals from the Frontline, um, which is more than weekly, right? Yeah, uh, every Tuesday and Saturday. It's about a half hour long, kind of a more of a news-oriented uh, podcast, a little bit of humor and uh, uh, community, uh, what's going on out in the, in the community, that kind of thing. It's short and sweet. Um, and Andrew, um, we look forward to seeing you um, at the ETC, getting beaten by all four home nations. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, not hopefully not this year, but uh, yeah, we look forward to seeing you guys and uh, 
maybe we'll come back on and update uh, update you and Matt when we uh, have the final team after the qual circuit ends. Definitely, we we want to stay in touch with everybody. We're we're aiming here to really try and give a, a real worldwide view of competitive forty k and and you know continue this community community building which you guys are working so hard to do out there. So thank you very much for that. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, as Reese said earlier. It, it's it's all about raising you know the oh how did you say it? raising the tide of boats together I, I don't know you said it more eloquently <laughs> high tides raise all ships right there you go <laughs> we're not the best at speaking good but we sure like to roll dice that's right you still, you were just representing proud American English you're still better with words than the uh, entire Games Workshop design team so it's all good fair play <clears throat> all right cool guys thanks very much. Yeah, thanks for having us. And that brings us to the end of another action-packed bumper episode. Hope you enjoyed that. We'll be back in a fortnight's time. We will have coverage of the third and final GT Heat round, uh, this time out of Warrington. A number of uh, the cast members were there. Um, and I can reveal that that was won by a very interesting list from Nathan Roberts, who you may be well aware of. Um, he ran Sisters with Space Marine Allies. So we'll definitely try and get some, uh, some insights from him in that list. Um, loads of Eldar there as well, as to be expected, uh, but we'll do a full rundown on that for you uh, next week. If you want to see some of the results, you can catch that on our Facebook page. That's uh, facebook.com forward slash AOC podcast, um, or just search for Allies of Convenience. Uh, also, we should be getting some coverage from Du Bois uh, tournament, hopefully, uh, in the States, so look out for that. We're also going to be going through some of the brand new Tyranid release units and rules and how that affects uh, the Tyranid force uh, so look out for that. Of course, we'll also be covering what's going on in the world of 40k competitive gaming in general. Um, if you want to get involved, please do so. Um, we're always uh, looking for suggestions and feedback. Um, if you're on the Facebook page, uh, as we mentioned before, facebook.com forward slash AOC podcast, uh, just drop us a message. Let us know how we sound. If there's anything particularly you want to hear us cover, uh, if there's any uh, players you would like to hear us talk to, please let us know and we'll take that on board. Uh, we're looking at doing some more Q&As as well, so look out for that on the Facebook wall. Uh, if you're listening to us on iTunes, we would greatly appreciate it if you guys could leave us a positive review, uh, so that all helps. And if you've got any friends that are into competitive 40k and you know they don't listen to the podcast, let them know, share the link around. It's all good, the more the merrier. So we'll see you again in two weeks' time. Thank you very much for listening. Take care.